Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And that makes this our continued investigation of Earth 982, the one, the only, the MC Tuniverse. And we are standing on the precipice of what I am certainly comfortable calling, unironically, the best the series has ever been. Uh, we're talking about where we came off of, right? Well, I'm talking about where we're heading. I am very positive on Last Hero Standing. I'm Okay, yeah, really Last Hero Standing, on. yes. And so, but when we say series, the first thing that comes to mind is, of course, Spider-Girl, because for a while that's been really the only series in MC2. And I will say the issues that we're going to cover before we get to Last Hero Standing, ooh, a bit of a backslide. I will agree. I am not the biggest fan of the arc that takes us into Last Hero standing and that means we're here to talk about spider girl number 80 through 88 as well as the official handbook of the marvel universe alternate universes entry we're going to take a look at the mc2 pages of that but not exactly all of it but most of it because it's unbelievable to it's it's unbelievable and then we're going to take a look at the mc2's first major event crossover last hero standing and this is quite a period to be an mc2 reader i cannot believe it yeah i mean again the craziest thing to me is that I was fully ensconced in comic book Marvel reading at this time. And like, this is when I really started to be like, other stuff exists besides the X-Men. You should at least know what's going on. And I felt like I had a pretty good grasp of what was going on throughout the Marvel Universe. Like I was reading New Avengers at the time, whatever. I was paying attention. I truly had no idea that anything even related to MC2 existed, let alone was still being published, let alone other big books with major crossovers. Now, I happen to be working at a comic book shop right when this event was coming out. Firmly working at that shop in summer of August, you know, 2005. That's really a great time for my memories of working at an LCS. And this was a pretty major event. People were like, oh, right, that Spider-Girl thing's still going on. I guess I'll, uh, I guess I'll pick that up. And it was really fascinating to see people returning to Spider-Girl by way of Last Hero Standing, but still not really returning to Spider-Girl girl which actually the sales figures do reflect at this point and i don't know it really does feel like last hero standing could be a crossover i could also see other titles tying into it and you know some of the spider girl stuff would have been pulled out and it feels like a universe again and i'm just really excited to be here yeah it's been a long time coming especially after the hours and hours we have spent reading and talking about just spider girl yeah we're finally back to talking about some additional heroes in a pretty big way and it's really interesting because it's still all the 
the same creatives. All of the issues are written by either Tom DeFalco, Tom DeFalco and Pat O'Leaf, or Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. All of the issues are penciled by Ron Friends or Pat O'Leaf every now and then. It's a combination of the two. Inks are by Sal Buscema and Scott Koblish. Once again, one or the other, or you guessed it, the two together. We have Gotham Studios, Udon Studios, and Digital Rainbow Studios working on colors, as well as Rob Rowe over on coloring Last Hero Standing. Letters all the way through by Dave Sharp. And the official handbook of the Marvel Universe is a thing that exists by way of reusing art mostly. So any of the art or stories referenced should just be credited to the original creators, which are pretty much always the names we just said here. So I have some sales numbers for you, and they're kind of shocking, okay? And here's part of the shock for me. We talked about some of these numbers last episode, and Spider-Girl 81 starts off with sales of just about 20500 And by the time we get to Spider-Girl 88, we're looking at sales of just under 19000 It's shocking that this book started out with like, you know, these numbers in the 60,000s, and here we are looking at these numbers. The official handbook of the Marvel Universe, which came out the month after this Spider-Girl arc that we're looking at, but contained information about a Spider-Girl arc that would not yet happen for several months, it's really strange, would go on to sell just over 25,000 copies. And this is like, this is seriously, dude, you have no idea. People did not stop reading Last Hero Standing. It debuted at 39,500 or so copies, and it ended at 32,100 copies. Damn. The retention on that is insane. Yeah. You know, I guess it doesn't, I mean, I shouldn't say it doesn't surprise me. There's a lot to take in. But when I think about how it references the original Secret Wars, how it sort of predicts the future Hickman Secret Wars. Oh my God, how it basically is Civil War the year beforehand. And then there's that. And also just like, I I think even that name, Last Hero Standing at that time is really smart because that was very much like a reality TV trope. You know, like the first thing that springs to mind is Last Comic Standing. But there's this idea of like you pit the greats against each other and something interesting happens. And I can see based on all of that how regardless of the universe that this is in, it has a certain appeal to people. And then maybe even more so when they realize that this thing that they'd maybe forgotten about actually continued on and has some interesting story worth digging into. Truly, I was really fascinated to see these numbers hang on and it kind of told me that maybe we do know what this readership is now. This readership is anyone who grew up ingrained in the notion of fandom. I don't even necessarily mean grew up in fandom because you could have grown up fandom parallel. You know, my husband didn't grow up in comics, but he grew up obsessed with The Simpsons and Star Wars and he got his hands on every Simpsons and Star Wars book he could and memorized all the facts. And, you know, if you asked him a stat about Bart Simpson, he might as well have been telling you an Ohatmu stat. Like, growing up fandom adjacent is the same thing as growing up fandom for, in terms of like that anal retentive interactive factor. And these books are made for that reader. 
I really think it has to be. I think that's an interesting slice of who the person would be. It's something now that I have to think about. It makes a lot of sense to me. The thing that never computes to me is what Marvel wanted to do and have happen with this little thing that they had. It feels like they never treasured it the way it deserved. Yeah, and but like they were relying on the fact that there was a group of readers that were treasuring it. So it's odd that they wouldn't. Yeah. Like they understood the instinct was there. They just didn't have it at all. Yeah, like they didn't have to love it because other people loved it enough for them. It's seriously, it's almost like a partner that didn't treat the universe right because like, and don't get me wrong, I edit this show, man. I listen back to what we say. And sometimes I'm like, yikes, this is this is a little rough. Do I agree with this a couple of weeks later or a couple of days later? Do I agree with this later that same night whenever I'm editing this? And the answer is always like, maybe I cut the word very. Maybe I dial back the really, really just to a really. But when we're critical of this universe, it's because it's made mistakes. But I honestly am regretful of the fact that I didn't get to buy it as it came out or support the trades as it came out. You know, once my dad stopped collecting it, I stopped collecting. So it wasn't until I went back years later working at the shop that I had a chance to read a lot of it. And I ultimately feel like this has been a pleasure for me. And like, I look forward to my reading now. A couple episodes ago, not so much. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we pre-recorded a lot of this. There was a point early in the first few episodes where we continually talked about like, we are we enjoying this? Are we having a good time? And that was a time at which we were very critical of a lot of the content. I think in a lot of ways, because I had no connection to it from childhood, I was incredibly critical. And I still really enjoyed reading even all of that difficult stuff. I enjoy reading it more and more as it continues. And if I could go back and do anything, it might be to sort of repeatedly establish that there are things that Tom DeFalco can do as a writer and that Tom DeFalco understands understands as a writer, as somebody who has been an editor-in-chief at Marvel, as somebody who is really one of the greats and an architect of Marvel story and character, there are things that he fundamentally understands about superheroes and superhero stories and the superhero universe that you can be an incredible writer and you might have a really good idea for a particular story in comic books, but you might never pull off great writing because there's a lot of fundamentals that you don't understand. DeFalco has all of the fundamentals and then some to a degree that few writers ever do. And that is present in every single issue, even the ones that are really difficult for a lot of reasons. And the reason I think it's so easy to be critical is because if that level of experience and knowledge of the world and the characters and just the concept of superheroes, if that level of knowledge could be supported in a way that could make the modern intention of the book shine through a little better, this really could have been something to rival the Ultimates years before the Ultimates ever existed, and it could have left a legacy that was a lot bigger today. Because you can even see where it really is trying to break through. You can see every time it gets so close, and it really didn't have the support that a universe takes nowadays. You know, if you're doing an independent universe, great, do an independent universe, and that's awesome, and you can do so much by sort of angling the story 
storytelling from the perspectives you want. But when you're still playing at Marvel and Marvel dictates how your book is going to come out, you can't have the freedom to shape your world to your own house style. Now you're beholden to Marvel house style. And there's only so far that leash allows the creature to, to venture. You know what I mean? So no matter what, the MC2 line was always going to stay within some radius of the Marvel doghouse because the leash went no further. If this was Black Hammer, if this was, you know, one of my all-time favorite comics in history, the Mark Wade Incorruptible Irredeemable Universe, you can do so much because you're not beholden to someone's definition of Superman. You're beholden to Wade's definition of the Plutonian, to Wade's definition of max damage. You are bound by the ethical core of the universe set by the creator. Here, DeFalco, being a company man through and through, runs the ball on the Marvel agenda in a way that sort of sacrifices ever truly developing an MC2 agenda. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And I think when we look at the sales numbers and things that DeFalco has said about, like, they just kept giving us issues because the numbers were too good. Well, we look at the numbers and they're not great. So clearly when he says they're too good, he also means based on how we were able to turn this out. And being able to turn out a product that at relatively low sales numbers for a company like this still feels to them like a worthy pursuit, that takes some sacrifice in terms of a certain type of content or certain perspective on the content that we as fans reading it now can really see like if it was there this could be a recognizable universe that was still sort of participatory in the grand Marvel multiverse concept today and there are still of course traces of this universe and you know I'm going to get like super weepy when we get to those final episodes and I'm going to push for a few post episode specials where we talk about the sort of random appearances that some of the characters would go on to make or places where creators tried to make the MC2 happen in the proper Marvel cosmos. But, you know, we do see exactly what you said, precursors to later books and threads of this universe still existing in Rena's appearance on the Secret Wars Alex Ross variant to Secret Wars by John Hickman number one. Rena fills in the Wolverine lower right-hand corner position on the cover. So, you know, it's nice to see that there is some lasting, recognizable imprint of a universe that always deserved a little bit better than you know and I because I just I'm not coming for Joe Quesada Joe Quesada got the job of editor-in-chief because he was an incredibly shrewd businessman and when he took on the Marvel Knights line he turned it around and made it a mega hit they gave him the company and then he turned it into a worldwide franchise that Disney purchased so Joe Quesada might not have given MC2 the love it deserved but he gave the fucking universe 250 issues and that's all based on a what if yeah i mean it's so funny to have the back and forth of seeing all the places that this line could expand and become so many more books and characters that we want to see in depth more i mean we just could do a whole other podcast where we just talk about the things we want for rena but the fact that spider girl alone got as much content as she did for as long as she did is sort of a miracle again the sales numbers don't necessarily bear out that you would think like oh of course they want to keep publishing this I agree completely. And, you know, the issues we're looking at span 
February 2005 through September 2005. That is the tightest span of issues we have looked at since our third episode. This is episode number nine. That's quite a while. So I am so, so excited to take a look at what really represents a major point for the MC2 because, you know, in reference to Tom DeFalco's statement of they kept giving us more issues because we were doing, you know, good numbers, it is also of note, though, that this is the point at which that the title really started to lag on sales and that sales lag resulted in a renumbering and that renumbering ultimately only lasted about a third of the time that the original numbering did. And, you know, then they brought it back a thousand more times, but it was ultimately sort of a staggered grave. It's not that Spider-Girl kept getting reprieves. It's just that she staggered to her end. And we're going to get into all of that, but I am riveted to talk about some of these issues with you because I even might have still been a little bit more positive than you were on Family Business because I just think Family Business is so tongue-in-cheek. It's unbelievable. That's fair. And I mean, I I think I reflect on this maybe. It's been a minute. We, we broke up how we were doing our coverage a little bit from how we intended. So I had read this and had my notes for it done a long time ago and then to return back to it and start with the return of the dragon king oh not where i wanted to be well that can only mean that we have to start things off by talking about spider girl number 80 secrets kill and i was really thrown off right away by the cover it's so bright and it feels a little bit too patriotic is that okay to say no it's okay to say this is completely okay (laughs) it's too patriotic Like, it infringes on my rights to be an American. Yeah, and I mean, this was like peak Marvel still trying to negotiate that. I always go back to anything involving the 9-11 firefighters and the superheroes showing up. Just, oh, Lord. So even just the big flag like this, it is a bit much. I will say, I think this cover does a very good job of showing you a spider girl that is clearly a woman, but is not done in a way that is so overtly sexual, it becomes really problematic and offensive. Yeah, you know, the thigh gap feels perhaps meant to look incidental, and I can accept that. That's a compromise I can make. Yeah, I mean, I'm maybe kind of damning it with faint praise. I just, we have really had some trouble with some covers lately, and this one, it makes me flash back to the conversation that we had, and we see another moment of this later on in these issues, where May is in um, her underclothes, but it's like shorts and a t-shirt. It's nothing the least bit sexual. And this feels like the cover equivalent of that where like of course you're gonna have a comic woman body where the waist is way too thin the thighs are insane but at least it's not done in this way where the ass is up in the air or the breasts are just defying all concept of gravity it's still superhero-y and you know that happens for all bodies but at least this is one where it's just like boom it's spider girl not hey look at this sex object for all of us i mean yeah you're absolutely right like her pivot is at a humanable angle and her shoulders are vaguely the size of her breasts, which seems impossible, like in a good way. Like, I can't believe that she's not so over-sexualized in this image, but I'll take it. Yeah. Now, you know, speaking of that, the cover in this era, you know, these issues probably aren't as well remembered in part because these are still in that not collected era. In fact, the only issues that were collected that we're going to be talking about today were Last Hero Standing collected in October of 2005. So like collected right away 
So this had come out just before it and didn't get collected. That's kind of crazy. So I feel, though, that this really bright cover giving way to what is meant to be a dingy page, but like so dingy, too dingy. I almost feel like this front page is oppressively bummery. Yeah, it is a tonal shift. And it's really jarring in a lot of ways because, you know, this isn't like some super different creative team. It's not like they had Isad Ribic come in and do the cover. This is like the same creative team doing a reasonable cover. So I am a little thrown perhaps why there is such a stark difference. But ultimately, this opening sequence is pretty standard Spider-Girl for the most part. There's something kind of frustrating about the fact that in an age of like needlessly dark incel men which is well over by now you know this character is like the vantage point we're supposed to see the world through that makes him feel very kind of like punisher era kind of it just gives it like an edge that i don't think really fits the story and it just doesn't do much for me giving me like a a bad guy sad sap to view the world through yeah and it also the whole thing is returning to a monster of the week format that even though we are kind of cycling around doing larger arcs, we haven't totally, for the most part, backslid to Monster of the Week. So this setup of like just this one page that tells us that there's something going on before we cut to May and into her whole life, it feels reminiscent of a time where this book was not at its best. And it's also, it immediately telegraphs the villain that we're getting and everything that happens. So a weird time where for one of very few moments in my Spider-Girl reading, I'm actually pining for May's high school social life storylines rather than this villain Spider-Girl storyline. Oh, man. And I love that the villain Spider-Girl storyline, you're absolutely right. It does telegraph. You know, he says Mr. H at the beginning, and then the guy says, my name is Hackmutter. And if you remember that Hackmutter is the janitor from the basement, and there's the little dragon things in the opening, you can probably put it together and get to that kind of connection and hand wave what is probably one of the worst villains of the series he's somewhere between offensive and troubling and yeah i looked forward to the high school situation where they were just kind of like why are you all bruised up again may like not quite as aggressively but good notice that she's bruised or maybe you're not great friends yeah and then of course the revisit of the davida situation which was important to get back to And, you know, we're moving towards something better, and I'm really grateful for it because we either need to patch it up or move the fuck on. I feel very moved on from Brad. I feel divorced of Brad. If we never saw Brad again, like maybe we could see him in a hate group and, you know, she acts, she punches him and then takes off his mask and she's like, I can't believe you're the guy I had a crush on in the first few issues. But like, other than that, I don't really need to see Brad ever again. And I feel like we do a pretty thorough job divorcing him here. You can either divorce Davida from the story or you can put them together. That's it. Yeah, I will say again, you know, I'm going to keep repeating it until something happens, but we're way too far into this series for not one of these people to know her secret identity. And I would 
was hoping it would be part of the DeVita resolution. I just don't know. Again, this is one of those things that I'm like, DeFalco totally gets superhero stuff. There's got to be a secret identity. It's got to be a difficult thing to juggle. But I think that there wasn't somebody who could be like, hey, you're nailing it with her having trouble with the secret identity. But I think you're missing the fact that kids are way smarter and more sophisticated today. And at least one of them would have figured it out. And that story is one that is missing from the first hundred issues at least. And it's really unfortunate. And something that's interesting is as the book continues to get older, it feels like it's adapting to aging tropes and like it's seeing them change and it's trying to work around it. A thing that you started to see emerging a little bit more on television at this point was perhaps not fully divulging your identity, but having a working relationship with other people where you just sort of fight the weird together. And maybe that's what he was going for, that sort of parallel that already existed in a number of other bits of fiction. But in a world where you're getting a familially rich runaways and uh, the development of the Young Avengers into their own hero brand, it's really hard to see these teenagers not be more intelligent together. I mean, like in the one I, it's just always DeVita. DeVita is the one that I feel like just she should have known 50 issues ago. Even Courtney, who like as the smart nerdy person, you would think like she figure this out by now. Maybe terrible at hiding her identity. You can easily wave that away as like she finally has this boyfriend and they're kind of obsessed with each other and she just hasn't been thinking about it. It hasn't actually been that long that May's been Spider-Girl. She just hasn't taken the time to figure it out. DeVita is the one person where I'm like, that friend should have figured it out. And then of course the other one is JJ. Although the reference to like the Warriors as the team where they all know each other but they don't know their secret identities. I do like that. It is a good trope. I just, the, the high school thing, we're missing that in that kind of fuses her two lives. Because it's making the ways to bring them together more and more frustrating. You've got to find ways to have May there that doesn't mean you can't have Spider-Girl or vice versa. So it's, you know, a lot of, well, where'd you go? Oh, I'm fine. Don't worry. And it does kind of give some room for what Davida is talking about at one point in the issue. There's a lot of like explosively weird behavior for quote unquote justifiable reasons. And I only say quote unquote because they are justifiable reasons, but they're treated like the people involved are made of glass. And that's a little a little odd. You know, Davida just yelling at May in the same issue where we're told, hey, you never know what someone's going through. Moose lost his mom and now he might lose his dad. You know, it's it's scary. But then there's Davida going off on May, not knowing what's going on in May's world. And what are you going to yell at her? Well, if your family was dying of cancer, you should have told us and then I wouldn't have been a bitch. Like there's a, a sort of disconnect in that explosiveness, but I can see how May did create the in for it. Yeah, it's all there. Like it's not like, oh, I don't understand how we got to this point. It's more that there are so many other places we could be, especially with these two characters, that feels much more authentic to the relationship that they have. Instead, we're still sort of wasting time on creating villains like Kevin and setting up his weird relationship with the dragon janitor. 
and or the janitor dragon i, I like drag, just, dragon janitor yeah it's weird you know i don't need to be made to feel bad for this kid this is a book that exists in a space created by buffy and it's why buffy comes up a lot here because you can really see how tom defalco and crew were super influenced by something that they influenced to help create in the first place by crafting the comics that directly influenced the creators so it's not like they're stealing from buffy no it's a really beautiful reciprocity of creation and exchange of idea and it's really great to see but it does sometimes mean that we sort of get used to certain maybe faults that exist because of tropes from the era yeah i think that's exactly right and one of the things about that is the creation of the sad sack man sad sack man was really popular at this time in comics and tv the kind of guy that you're supposed to feel bad for and that explains why he's evil and he's going to kill Wolverine because one time Wolverine was fighting a guy in an alley and Wolverine's claw went back and it nicked him in the shoulder and now he always has shoulder pain when it rains so he's going to secretly become a supervillain and kill Wolverine and this is like not even a pitch that's like 37 different Wolverine stories from 2001 to 2015 and I just didn't need it in Spider-Girl's book in a book where the main female character doesn't always have the most page time and agency in a way that reflects her as the star and hero of the title more so often the vantage point I just didn't need Kevin yeah I mean I think because we already established the dragon janitor as one of those characters that we didn't like and we could just move on from so the idea that you get the next generation kid version that's also helping him out like oh see it happens to everybody like they come in all sizes it just didn't need it evil is all around us it's in your school's broom closets right now you know where else evil is it's in the family and spider girl 81 was a weird mix of fun creative thoughtful and maybe a little unearned i think that we once again see the discussion of the trope of naming where it comes to a woman accepting a hero's legacy moniker is sort of fascinating we saw the whole thing with i'm not lady octopus but i understand it's really tough for you guys if you can't call two different characters the same name again i have literally known other nikos it's not that hard but you know i'm fascinated by your thoughts on aftershock not girl electra i mean i love that you say unearned because you're 100 right but at the same time like this is a defalco gets what he's got thing like if you've got spider-man and his daughter you probably have spider-man villains and their kids too and we've seen a bunch of them and so the idea that you might one issue just be like oh yeah remember that villain they also have a kid and here's the whole thing is it's really funny and like it's in terms of narrative economy in, in some ways it's really great like just like yeah this this of course this character exists and we're throwing you right into the middle of it we don't need to do a big setup on her life or a big reveal she's just right there and then you know the idea that she's not going to call herself Electra for a lot of reasons I love Aftershock um, makes no more or less sense than Electra go with it especially what's funny here is she is a female character bound by the shadow of her father which forces her into a life and role she's not necessarily I mean like it's an Electra complex so like she is actually a little bit more electricity and she doesn't get the name but the art on this issue is some of the most extreme 
into deformed the Spider-Girl art has ever been. This is legitimately extreme into deformed where like Brenda looks like a human corset and Spider-Girl is back to putting them apple bottoms right above her head. But like everybody's so angular. And I think one of the reasons that looks so right from the first page, not the over-sexualization of Spider-Girl, but rather the angularity and hyper-deformity is that in their masks, both Aftershock and Spider-Girl lack facial structure that allows for that level of humorous deformity through kind of undulation. Yeah. Um, and I think at this point, Ron Friends has been doing these issues for so long that you sort of just start to roll with the fact that it's, you can always tell when he's drawing it, but the style is not consistent. In a way that's sometimes really fun, sometimes it's a bit of a miss, but it, it feels always Ron Friends. And it's one of the things that I love about having such a creative, such a consistent creative team on this title that even when Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco and Pat O'Leaf decide to stretch and show off some new technique, new trick, new idea, there's still a binding agent where you're like, oh, but it's still the same team. I still trust them with these characters. And not to sound like a dick, but like in a way that I'm never going to trust anybody with these characters ever again after issue 51. Never again. Never, ever again. I'm like so protective of these characters and it really bothers me that the only issue where I'm like, no, an unforgivable mistake was made is not by the proper creative team. Yeah. But a sort of silly mistake made by our creative team, I do not. Okay, well, let me start with Brenda being like, Spider-Girl, Spider-Girl. You know, it's that scene from the end of Mad Men where Don is proposed to his secretary when they're on vacation and she calls her mom and she's like, mom, just be getting married. And it's sort of like, oh my God, Spider-Girl. Zishwi getting bird married and I love that for Brenda right but what I can't stand is Peter's continued hatred of Normie it will ultimately prove vital (laughs) 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 but at this point it's really annoying I mean it is but it's also really funny Peter Parker cannot change and can't get out of his own way and that is why he is no longer Spider-Man. The other side of that is I often feel like May is not given the opportunity to stand up and shine in such a way that you're like man Peter she's doing so much better at this it really is better that she's in the driver's seat but (laughs) what you get instead is man Peter you are such an ass right now and this has gone on for so long that you really should continue just to stay out of it and let May fumble her way towards ecstasy and figure this thing out. But speaking of ecstasy, like when we got the perspective of Electro and the issue set up, I was really apprehensive. And then Electro is like a decent person. Like he's a bad man and he's a killer and a villain, whatever. But like it's admirable to see that he wants to protect his daughter from this and that it ultimately gives me the Peter Parker moment of my dreams in the same issue where I'm like, he makes me want to tear out my eyebrows, right? Like I absolutely drives me nuts, but like everybody fawning over him in an issue that gets to remind us about who all of the heroes of the MC2 are getting us ready for the crossover. Like everybody fawning over Peter being like, it's a privilege to meet you. It made me really smile. I get it. It really was sweet. And it's something that has been kind of missing from this book prior to this. It's one of those things where as soon as I saw it on the page, I realized that we've 
gotten a lot of recognition of Spider-Man. And when he comes back, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, Spider-Man, like you're here. And, you know, obviously the Fantastic Five know who he is. So when they see him, it's a little bit of a different story. But the idea that the current Avengers see him and he is the hero of their childhood. He is who they were emulating when they became heroes. That's a really beautiful thing to see. It's totally believable. And I can't believe it took us more than 80 issues to get to see it. It's in part because it takes us so many issues between appearances of J2 being a hero. Like seeing him just deflect the lightning here is so great. And yeah, it's sort of a bummer that this is probably the first appearance of Electro proper. And he gets the same level of emotional care to his daughter in that issue as Peter gets in like 81. And that's a little frustrating because ultimately Aftershock being like it's death to touch me, it's effective and it's a really sort of emotionally fraught story for these characters. You can see that like Max Dillon feels like he's never done a good thing in his fucking life and I value seeing this story. I just sort of feel like why is Max getting the same quality treatment Peter does? Because this is Spider-Girl in the MC2. Like there's going to be these massive things that just don't make any sense that are somehow weaved into an issue that is beautiful and heartbreaking and tells a story that we've been dying for this entire time and didn't realize it. And that is the silly beauty and joy of this whole thing. Honestly, the panels where Mary Jane covers Peter and May in a blanket and they're in their spider costumes like chokes me up so bad. And, you know, that the creative team did something so right with just a little word. They put dedicated with love and respect to all the families who never give up. Not all the fathers, all the families. Like, guys, way to get it so right on so many levels with one issue when the mc2 is effective it's super effective like take it right to the elite four you're going to be number one master trainer right absolutely and the fact that again the contrast of that being that this villain that we've not heard a thing from this entire time shows up and has a very similarly emotional waiting moment with his child that seems like it just should be wrong on a fundamental level and maybe it is but the issue at the end of the day really does work and it just is okay that this idea that has no basis in any sort of worked out previous plot or anything can just show up and we will accept it and enjoy it because that's kind of what the MC2 is in a lot of ways. Yes. The MC2 is also unfortunately colorblind in a way that is not always becoming. For example, Spider-Girl and her amazing friends Davida Kirby's page. It's weird how Davida is so not black. Yeah. She has nothing about her that reflects her black identity. And as a Cuban man that does, you know, I mean, as a Greek man, as a human man, as a as a gay person, as a as a living creature, it bothers me that somebody's identity and something that would be central to who they are is so sadly erased. And that's why it's not that Tom DeFalco is not a great writer. It's that Tom DeFalco probably needed a black sensitivity reader because the only place where anything particularly reminiscent of a woman of color comes up would be under favorite entertainers which are janet jackson okay but you know 
she was the number one entertainer in the world a number of times. And then it's Jennifer Lopez. But then it's, and I suspect she's got her eye on Jessica Simpson. And it's like, why do you suspect she secretly likes this white woman? That nobody likes. Like, it's not even, if you'd said Britney Spears, at the very least, we'd be like, well, she's the most popular, you know. Jessica Simpson in 2005? That's nobody. That is not a demographic that exists. You know, by that point, Jessica Simpson was more of a commodity than (laughs) an artist. You know what I mean? So I find myself a little disconnected from that page. But let me tell you how much I loved Inside the Beast issues 82 to 84. I loved this three-parter. Legit. I thought it was great. Um, I won't go with great, but it was fun. You know, that cover right off the bat is spectacular. So you already know it's going to be a Venom story. And it's, you know, Venom swallowing Normie and, you know, Spider-Girl only seven issues after breaking out the black costume. Here we see her up against the Venom symbiote back in her classic costume. It feels perhaps like, oh my God, who is this old man? I was waiting for it. This I mean, dude, he's getting older and older every issue. I it's I was going to say Benjamin Buttoning, but it's not that he's just rapidly aging. Yeah, he's Zethro zippering. <laughs> it is the absolute opposite of Benjamin Buttoning. It's it's weird. You know what else is weird? I never thought about the fact that if Riley Tyne ever met Peter Parker at, say, Normie Osborne's engagement party to the Raptor, he'd be like, why does that guy look Look like me in 60s art. But what he says is, that guy reminds me of Tobey Maguire. Okay, yes. And that is something that is really crazy to think about. It's only about five years between Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. So we really need to put into context how the MC2 is so bound by its references that they are well obligated and commended for, including a state in the Ohatmu issue that says, of note, even though this is a real-time aging, it is not the future, they have today's pop culture references. Yeah, and this is an important thing to, because I really don't feel like the the thesis of what was going on with time was super clear when MC2 started, and I feel like what they settled on was the age of Spider-Man's heyday would be in the past for these guys, so their present day is our present day. Anyway, I don't even want to try and explain it, but it it becomes very firm in that the 616's present is 982's past, basically. Yes, very much. And there's also something that makes it harder to get a, a read on these characters then because we're imposing then but now to then's current pop culture being applied to artificially progressed versions of past versions of then present characters. It makes gauging the ages on some of these characters just fucking impossible. Not and like without any laughter screaming oh god there he is. Every time I look at the page of Elan Fury the Goblin Queen pushing everybody out of the way on her goblin glider. I always think that Chris is then current age Foggy Nelson. Yep. Like I think he is adult old man Foggy. I don't think he's current now Foggy because Foggy in the Marvel Universe currently looks younger than Chris looks there. Yep. And, you know, it's tough because I feel like now Norman post-Goblin formula feels 35. Yeah. Riley feels like he is not out of college.
knowledge yet. That is a very baby face. And that's fine. Whatever. Riley is the most like easily justifiable one. Whatever. Peter, I'm constantly reminded of the fact that Peter clearly was a super young dad and is should not be that old. But is drawn like he's pushing 50. And not just pushing 50, but he's specifically weathered in a way that is unbecoming compared to, say, Johnny Storm, who lives a harder life than Peter does. Right. And Johnny Storm looks great. Yeah, Johnny Storm looks amazing. Johnny Storm looks the age they're supposed to look. Speaking of looking amazing, oh my goodness, this creative team really gets the Venom symbiote. There's something that the age of Venom is dark magic that we live in now, which is, you know, a direct result of some negative responses to the reset on my preferred Venom, Agent Venom, Flash Thompson, who's now anti-Venom and so cool, big fan. But there's something about it that has lost the sort of like hyper vor monster that Venom was in the 90s. And I, you know, I just said that's not even my preferred Venom, but it's really cool to see a version of the character I remember. Yeah. And I love how he looks. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also like that they have included some distinguishing features that make it clear that this isn't just whoever hops in the symbiote becomes Venom. And they, and they also establish this in the dialogue too. But like there are some real artistic ticks to it that show you that when a symbiote bonds with a person, they form a specific identity and personage that's going to look different every time. Yeah, the fucking snake worm anus jaw is really one of a kind. Like, really. And like the triple fold snout nose thing. Like, that's the big one that always gets me. The mouth and nose region. And it gets developed more as this goes on. You know, they're very small visual details. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. But if you do these little things, nobody's ever going to look at it and be like, oh, wait, I got confused. Where's Eddie Brock? Yeah, I agree completely. And... They do such a great job keeping the story moving here. I don't feel this ever reads like it shouldn't be three parts. I have had a number of complaints that Spider-Girl multi-parters haven't had the pacing I'm looking for, but this three-parter for me does feel like a solid three parts. This issue, the fight sequence stays fast. There's a lot of experimenting with big room on pages. You know, I feel like this was maybe always Fury's plan, like slowly evolve Normie to where he thinks he wants it. I don't think she just wants to reprogram him. You know, goblins are always like, yes, embrace your inner dark. So like, it kind of fits and this just really fucking feels like an Osborne plan. Yeah. And Goblin stuff is always about corruption. You're right. It's always about making somebody embrace their inner darkness and throwing the Venom symbiote in as a component of that is not the first thing I would think, but it's fun and it works. Because it's the kind of thing that, yeah, you know, I could imagine Venom in the 90s trying to kill Daredevil. In fact, I've read it. So when Venom stabs Dark Devil, which, by the way, I I no longer care when Dark Devil gets injured. You cannot make me care about Dark Devil dying. I hit a point where he is unkillable. He will live forever. It's just not going to happen. Just stop trying. This is Krakoa rules. On top of the fact that, like, he's a double-souled, like, ghost demon man like he's already basically dead his spirit's always around anyway there's no way i'm ever buying so when they get rushed to you know the adventures compound and they are he's all webbed up oh my god i love that may webs dark devil's injuries that's the cutest little thing ever little spider tourniquet and we 
we see the Anex team and they're like, oh, no, nope, we got to call him the big guns, Dormagus, who the minute you bring in Doc Magus, I'm thrilled because like he's not just visually one of the most interesting things about this universe, but he is really fun. He's got like a, a personality that shines through uniquely in the MC2 universe. It does. And I love that he is fully capable 95% of the time as Sorcerer Supreme, while also answering the question, what if Stephen Strange had a slightly shittier attitude? Everything about him is funny and works to me, and he's like not quite deus ex machina, but he's a really good utility character to show up and be able to bounce off of both dialogue-wise and plot-wise. And by having him need Strange's expertise, not power, it doesn't humble Magus. It allows room for both of them in a way that maybe I feel like there isn't always room for the Warriors and Kane's team. You know, I feel like there's room for Doc Strange and Doc Magus the way that I feel like there's room for the Fantastic Five and A-Next. Yeah. This A-Next appearance is a really great way to remind us about this team going into a big cross over the same thing with having the Parkers stay with the Fantastic Five. Really smart way to kind of keep this all in a nice clip. And why the fuck is Phil putting on the haunted mask from Goosebumps? What is happening? We've gone so long. It's been so long. I kept putting all these things in my notes. Like, you know what? But Phil hasn't spoken in like 17 issues. Like, how great. How great. This is, they hurt us. They, this is what we wanted. This is what you want. But I, this is not, this is not our cheeky song. And I am am defeated by Phil's joy. Like he knows he's getting panel time. Yeah. And just the unhinged look in Phil's eyes every time they he gets this panel so often where I every they get me every time. They there's so many things where Tom DeFalco's like, oh, I'm gonna shock you. And I'm like, no, I guessed it 20 issues ago. But every time with Phil, they give him this insane look in the eyes grin. And I'm like, this is it. This is where Phil finally snaps and just completely loses his shit and destroys the city and it never happens that's just his stupid dumb fucking face yeah that is the case and that's the problem he doesn't have that secret dark side all there really is to Phil is looking like there's a secret dark side and that's why Peter has to keep Phil around because if Peter doesn't keep Phil near to him Phil will go too far into danger and like man Phil is super beta but he's like angry about it he's mad that he has to have you as his alpha even though he clearly needs you in a way that he has transferred on to his big strong buff best friend's child daughter and it clearly has had an impact on his psychological masculinity yeah the setup that you have just spoken out for a phil story is amazing but we're never gonna get that we're just getting this incompetent buffoon who hogs page time doing nothing we will ever care about well you know Speaking of things that I will never care about, this old man starts stalking May while she's changing. And I'm like, why? What does this Chris guy have? Like, is he secretly Norman Osborn reborn? Like, what is going on here that they keep cutting away to Chris? Because I'll be honest, this whole I'm going to put on the black costume plan. Like, it's what? I don't get it. Like, that's not it's 
not a plan. Like it's some interesting visuals, but that's not the same thing as a plan. What I would have really loved is if she did have a plan and she was like, this is going to confuse the shit out of the symbiote. And then she shows up and the symbiote is like, I can sense other symbiotes. That's literally just a Lycra suit. And May's just dumb sometimes. Yes, because that's where I, I don't understand what's going on here. But man, the visual of Fury, the Goblin Queen versus, you know, or like Eclair Saint Jejune or whatever her name is. And then we've got the, you know, Venom versus Spider-Girl fight. It's really great visual symmetry. And then again, we have more visual symmetry. We have Dormagus and Doctor Strange, which gives us Zarathos and Daredevil and Riley Tyne, who has the visual symmetry with Dark Devil. Ultimately, this three-part arc does feel pretty well thought out. What doesn't feel well thought out is the cliffhanger. That's the only thing in this three-parter that doesn't click for me. This cliffhanger and probably the May having a secret plan. If she was like, I just, you know, need the element of dark surprise as well. Like maybe, I don't know. Yeah, or like, you know, sometimes like sometimes you just got to like think of yourself in the enemy, even a stupid reason, but it really is just like, I, I got to change. I got to change my clothes. Yeah, and like the fact that I am somehow concerned for Phil is a testament to the DeFalco and Co. writing ability. When I saw Phil as the Spider-Girl and her amazing friends character profile on the last page, I was like, oh shit, boy's gonna die. It's here because it can never go again. They're gonna bane him. They're gonna break the bat's back. Although in this case, they're gonna like, you know, gobble the goblin's giblets or whatever. So that he didn't die here was legitimately surprising. Like, actually... Yeah, I I think I've just accepted that we're never getting rid of Phil. You know, but I don't need to get rid of Phil. I, I'm happy with what a limited perspective and plot opportunity he's had lately. Yes, doing less Phil is definitely a bonus. Um, I, uh, again, we're getting real close to 100 issues, and this is a character I would have thought by now would have gotten something, even for me to be like, sure, he sucks, but remember that awesome like three-issue arc where he was really cool or like where we were reminded about how he's Uncle Phil and he'll always be there for May. He is just this walking fucking disaster that everybody has to take care of. I'll give him this. He didn't die really well this arc. I mean, yeah, I, he distracted the shit out of Fury. Probably if he was not there, she had whole other plans that she could have executed that would have fucked everybody over. But because Phil was there, just getting punched, that took a lot of her valuable time. Yeah, I agree. Also, this cover is so good. Yeah, this is a great cover. The interior art here maybe shows some signs of overworking an undervalued creative team. The interior do start to get a little tiny face squishy. There's some over-reliance perhaps on the black suit as a method of not needing to put in a lot of visual detail. It allows for a specific kind of shorthand with the hyper-exaggerated musculature and it allows for things like the color focus throughout a lot of the magic story. The Doctor Strange, Doc Magus, Dark Devil, Daredevil, Zarathos stuff. There's a lot of color 
color blocking where everything's red, everything's yellow, everything's blue, everything's white in a way that perhaps everything's black, everything's goblin color palette on those other pages. It This does start to feel like this creative team was worked to their limit. Yeah. And I can imagine given the tightness of all the issues that came out at this time and the fact that this arc was very busy, there's a lot going on in each issue. It doesn't necessarily surprise me that it we get to a point where it's clearly a lot to juggle still works still a really fun interesting issue yeah i am a little confused by the exact method of the resolution not that it doesn't work for me the resolution is just a little bit wild mayday lets the symbiote eat her so she can pull her emotional strength with normie to fight the symbiote i really i like that you know and i agree with you phil gets in one good punch but he mostly goes to be willing to die so that fury can't get to his niece that works for me like okay phil good job yeah i have a nephew i get it you love you love little things cool but like the goblin formula normie stuff makes me itchy because i just did this whole i wish peter would stop being such a dick about the fucking osborne family and now i can't trust normie and i guess it's because he thinks the goblin formula makes him strong enough to fight the symbiote but it just sort of sounds like he's installed two serial killer softwares in his operating system (laughs) yeah i think that's correct ultimately i thought this was a really great return to arc-based storytelling for spider girl i was really happy with how this three-parter played out i mean i can hear that i was a probably a little bit bigger fan of this arc than you were but like i don't think either one of us had any really you know this didn't work for me kind of complaints no definitely not i did like this arc i did not like this volume overall and it's because of the stories surrounding it on either side this three is really solid and again you know it's one of these points that keeps coming up if they stick to three issue arcs six issue arcs four issue arcs whatever if they stick to arcs and get really intentional about this is part one the next issue is going to be part two whatever this clearly works better when that happens rather than doing random monster of the week like continuation of an old plot thread we'd forgotten about even in moments like the really weirdly fantastic family story of the Electro family and the Parker family, those as the exception that proved the rule would stand out to me more in a way that I enjoyed rather than being kind of part of a jumble grab bag of some arcs, some single issues, just being kind of chaos volume to volume. Yeah, okay. I really can hear where you're coming from. If perhaps this made up volume, because again, this is that unreleased Yeah, this is not really a volume. (laughs) You know, we're treading, it it would be, it would be. This is the six issues. But- if you put Dragon King with the return of Funny Face, it's a little frustrating. I think because I still think that some of the most effective storytelling in the whole MC2 have been the family-based stories that, man, it's so weird, but that Crazy Eight's autopsy scene really fucking sticks with me. Yeah. And that this is, you know, the whole issue boils down to Funny Face returns and May ultimately realizes he's come back for Bunky because his psyche is so fractured but like then i want to talk about mental illness right then i want to talk about how this is a family with mental illness and the one who thought he had enough sense to get help is gone and what happens in a vacuum where the familial patriarch the one who even if he wasn't you know pater but was rather the put upon son you know there's a sort of sense of responsibility to these characters that we have become attached to and i would have liked to have seen that from this 
this. Yep, I completely agree. And I again, I think there's a reflection in what drives the Parkers to be spider people that could have gone really well in what drives the face family to be face people. There was more to be drawn from this if we absolutely had to revisit Funny Face, which I maintain we just simply did not have to do. But again, had this been a three-issue revisitation of that story and what happened to that family and how that reflects on what happened to the Parker family, sure, I might have bought it. I just couldn't really buy this one issue that wasn't really about anything except Bunky. So weird to say. There's an issue of the Darkwing Duck comic, which, you know, for people who aren't aware, if I love something as much as I love Marvel or Vertigo, it's the Duckburg verse. And I make no apologies for this. And the canonical Darkwing Duck comics do a pretty fascinating story that rivals this. Funny to say, but the Duck comic does it with a little bit more realism. And I think the thing this issue was meant to do was to give Mayday something to do while other stuff happened. Phil is in the hospital, so he can fill this issue's hospital quotient, I guess. Oh my god. Normie moves the wedding up because we don't want to sit on that story for too long. We get a little bit more Peter in action, which is once again just sort of ultimately set up for Last Hero Standing, even if we don't realize it at the time. So this is really just a filler. It's just to bide some time. Yeah, and contrasting this to the Dragon King issue, which ostensibly was a similar thing. There was nothing else happening in the background except kind of the resolution with May and DeVita, which wasn't really enough of a thing to be, you know, a B plot to the main villain's A plot. It just feels like I would have rather had no villain in this issue and done just a bunch of little vignettes and moments in May's life. I agree a thousand percent because ultimately the Call Me Norman page is hyper effective. It really, you know, just like my grandfather, that's the villain of this issue. Are you kidding? Like that tells everything I need it to tell in a very clear way. And then of course, there's the last page and the last page resurfaces later on verbatim bothers me. But other than that, this uh, this issue really didn't do a whole lot. Yeah, no, it didn't. But the last page, it might have been worth it for the last page. I screamed like I actually shouted out loud. I was so excited just because like Rena has gotten some of the least affection of any character in the whole MC2 universe. And it just bums me out, bro. You know, I agree. She's obviously the one we're the most excited about all the time, forever and always. But we've seen the least done with her visually. We've seen the fewest artists take a crack at her and how they would do it. And just these few panels, just this one main like front shot of her, seeing how she is depicted here, seeing her costume in all its glory. It's different than we've seen it done by was Ron Lim. It's a gorgeous rendering of her full visual iconography, and it's just really nice to see. It's I've missed her anyway, but it's really great to see another artist take a spin on depicting her. Yeah, and it's so important that this continued development of like slightly changing the costumes, it's 
really necessary. We commented on it for J2 in the previous volume, how slightly changing his look really helped prep him visually for Last Hero Standing. I made a number of comments about how I feel Peter is getting little updates here and there to polish the character. So I do think that they are thinking about how these visuals do need to change in the seven years since the inception of the line. And I loved the Wild Thing book. The basic idea of her visuals make a ton of sense to me. They're really cool. They do very much give Wolverine's daughter, the daughter of Wolverine. But seeing another artist do like a less cartoony, slightly more realistic, slightly more three-dimensional rendering, it just reminds me that this is a character with all of the potential that wound up being fulfilled by Laura Kinney in the main Marvel universe. That's a really great way to look at it. And you know, in some ways, I think maybe Spider-Gwen is a lot the Spider-Girl that we wanted. You know, the high-energy superhero carrying on that, you know, great responsibility legacy, you know, but with a decidedly more female twist. So I feel like we are definitely at a point where Spider-Girl really needs to become a Spider-Woman and they're giving us room for characters like Laura to update and Laura, geez, like Rena to update and a little bit J2 as well. But when is Spider-Girl going to get a new look that sticks? I wish I knew the answer, but I do think you're right. I mean, and it's something that I have said many times, like I, I'm ready to see her age up. I would love to see a six month gap or something. I can understand for sure why it's easier for a character that we don't ever see like Rena to get slightly more sophistication out of just a few panels and why it's so difficult to move the needle on May, a character who is selling at a consistent rate as she is now. And any sort of big change to the formula might really derail the current status quo for her as a product. It just, in terms of long-term viability and sustainability, and again, I think, you know, looking at characters like Laura Kinney and Spider-Gwen, it what it goes to show is that some kind of investment in how a character can age into, can be future-proofed, essentially, is really important. And I think that may be, the, these may be some of the last characters of an era where they just weren't really quite thinking in that way. So even though the characters are really awesome and we fall in love with them and want best for them, there is a degree to which without somebody else coming in and saying, I'm going to make some structural changes and make some big moves for these characters, they can't move past a certain point. And I wonder how much of that is because of the anchor that the trappings of the MC2 natively carries with it. When I think about issues 86 to 88, family business, I am pretty quickly a little sigh heavy because I don't care for Alice, Jake, or Taurus. I don't think any of them are particularly interesting where Jake and Alice come close. They're a little flat. Taurus is deeply unlikable. And, you know, it's weird that I looked at Taurus and was like, wow, you're way too cocky and unlikable. Franklin, stand up for yourself. Franklin, why are you being bossed around by this child, Franklin? I don't know what this three-parter was meant to do. I was happy to see the return of Apox in some ways that felt like a thread that needed to be followed up again. They weren't going to set that up and drop it, not this universe. But this really just felt like constantly biding time. Yeah, and again, following that instinct that this book often has to give us characters we don't really need. We already had Taurus. We know he's a little shit. Whatever. We knew 
knew that the children of Ben Grimm existed. I, it makes sense that we would see them. They're cool characters conceptually. It's not, I'm not against their existence or their development. I mean, I love the idea that this kid was born with the thing's quote unquote deformity and having had to live with that and having a sister who is wildly overprotective. It's all really cool. It's coming a bit late. It's coming into a line of characters that never really impressed anybody, regardless of if it was in their own book or in the pages of Spider-Girl. The tie to the character of Apox, who's now kind of tied into May's mythology, if you've been reading this whole time, sure, I understand why it all works on paper when you're talking about this is the story I'm going to tell. I just don't know that throwing all these ingredients into a bowl and mixing them together made the best sell. And I do need to agree with that because one of the things that stood out to me in this arc, kind of like a sore thumb, was how hard they needed to work to justify all of these personalities. They didn't natively exist in the title. That was something that I very much felt was unavoidable. They had to do a lot of work to produce personalities for a number of these characters in a way that meant you were spending so much time trying to convince us that these characters were essentially as good as the Fantastic Four. And we were already kind of trying to accept that the Fantastic Five were as good as the Fantastic Four. To add in more children that all appear to have very serious flaws in terms of how they would operate as superheroes, which they should. They're kids. That's fine. It's just you tried to do a Fantastic Five book and it didn't work. I don't know that the solution is to expand the team in the pages of another book and use up very limited and valuable page space and very clearly rush to try and justify their presence. Because this page space is sort of better served a number of other places in this arc. I love the subtle Venom symbiote coming off of Norman. Yeah, like, always. I don't want this story, but man, was it clever? Yep. Looks good. That has to be a subtle The Room reference, right? When Courtney said his father's test results came in, definitely has cancer. Like, that is definitely a Tommy Wiseau The Room quote, right? Oh my God, what is that old man? <laughs> yeah. And now we're, uh, the, th- uh, the only thing I will say is now at least we are getting into just the full on this guy sucks trajectory that we've needed to be on since day one. Yeah, I agree. Chris sucks. He's taking credit for helping protect May. He's really a flat character who's being called out on his flatness in a way that I wish somebody would fucking do to Kristoff. Get out of here. You are and like Stinger, the one likable thing about you isn't even here to talk about you. I am so bored with this character. He offers me nothing because that is Chris Christoph Doom, right? That's yes. the Doom. It's Christoph. Yep. Yeah. yeah. He sucks. He, how is it? I'm reading a book where Franklin is the best guest star. Right? And the idea, again, like this is like the the backup Fantastic Five. I don't get what's happening here. Seeing Apox mop the floor with Anext and then the fucking Hulk <clears throat> and Namor, which when you contextualize other stuff, we're going to talk about this episode, that Apox took down the Hulk, really fascinating. So this arc leaves me feeling a little bit like they really just had to get some stuff done so they could work on 
on Last Hero Standing. I also like the reference to the new Fantastic Four, you know, the Hulk, Ghost Rider, Spider-Man, Wolverine version. It's a really cute reference. I'm a big fan. But I feel as though Apox being able to take on absolutely everybody in the entirety of the MC2 who hasn't popped away that's like Wolverine and a Lady Hawk at this point. I felt like this arc should have been two issues, not three for sure. Yeah, I don't know what it should have been. It really is just here to bide time. At the very least, what it gives us is a tight structure of a limited number of issues in which we are very clearly promised this is going to be the main story that we focus on. That, to me, is always a benefit of the book, even when the story is one that I'm just kind of like, this is not super alien scrawl stuff is like secondary to crime family stuff for me in terms of like, this feels outside of May's wheelhouse. And for one issue, it's cute and fun. But when we get into multi-issue arcs of it, it just feels like uh, one was plenty. Revisiting maybe is not my favorite idea. Especially because their plan isn't even particularly clear to me. No. Make a force field and then it's a bomb, I guess. And then between that and the fact that Apox has exactly the right energy to restore Sue's storm, the bow on that is so frustrating because when I read Franklin tell tell Spider-Girl about it, I was like, oh, I guess if you haven't read this all in six months, it doesn't feel as, oh my God, I'm tired of reading this. But again, this doesn't feel earned. This doesn't feel like we've dealt with this recently enough that like, wow, this is a payoff. This feels like it was on their checklist of things to do. And their checklist, not the checklist that the audience ever necessarily gave to them. I find it very hard to believe that there were a lot of people picking up this book on the regular that were saying like, man... I just wish I knew what happened with Sue Storm. And they try to pack so much in here. The actual Fantastic Five show up and then there's a fastball special and Spider-Girl can navigate through asteroids. And then there's just like a big happy thumbs up page that ends the issue basically. And then Norman is just really evil. It just, it barrels toward an ending so that the book can come back after Last Hero standing in a big way that just doesn't feel to me like is on the same level with the last few more quality arcs yeah this could have been a really perfect time and and obviously at this point that just absolutely couldn't have happened but had it happened a few other times throughout this run this would have been a really perfect time to stop and give somebody else a chance to write three issues of a spider girl story i know we were burned the one time we gave it away but i feel like had we mixed it up earlier on and let some other people play in the sand box a little bit this would have been a good time to let somebody else try you know at this point very possibly it could have been somebody that grew up with mc2 stories and you know had grown into an adult writer that might have been interested in writing in this universe give them three issues to play around while you focus on this incredibly worthy last hero standing project that deserves your full attention but juggling a reissue arc that is a spider girl story that is a fantastic five story that is partially a Fantastic Five Junior story, but is a revisitation of an old team-up between May and the Fantastic Five about the Skrulls that's also going to resolve the Sue Storm stuff, but don't forget there's Normie stuff we got to talk about, and there's also a thing we got to hint at in the background happening. That's a lot. And, you know, every one of those things you said has multiple sub-things beneath it. Yeah. Like, you have to say, the Norman stuff is Osborne Enterprises and Goblin stuff and Venom stuff. 
the heroes disappearing stuff is Rena, whose dad has now disappeared. So Wolverine is missing, and now Rena is on the case. One of the Lady Hawks disappeared, so now the other Lady Hawk is on the case. And the Fantastic Five stuff, you also kind of need to know Kristoff, who is an A next thing. Like everything here, everything you just said has like seven sub points. Yeah. And so even like the idea that you even had to cover it all is one thing, but to give it to a creative team that's also imagining a massive crossover that's also involving these characters at a different time so they can't really synergistically connect in any way or sort of overlap the work. I mean, like no part of me that doesn't enjoy these issues is like, how couldn't they write this better? I absolutely understand why these three issues might have slipped through the cracks. It's one of those things that I think about, which is like if other people had been able to take a crack at this, what might that have done for both expanding our understanding of the characters and the stories, but also for sort of seeding other creatives that might have had some stake in this and been able to pull it through at a certain point. Because no one's saying even take Tom DeFalco off of these projects. I'm saying like with you, make him EIC2 of MC2. Have him still be the architect building these houses, putting out these blueprints, but get him the kind of support he needs to craft a universe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if he wants to write a big project like Last Hero Standing, awesome. And then let somebody else take care of May. Let somebody else pitch, you know, whatever the next, a next book is going to be, or like a Stinger, God, Stinger Kristoff adventure book. I don't know. But this would have been a really good point if they were still interested in doing something with this universe to expand in some capacity. Ultimately, I find myself looking back on this sort of volume of 80 to 88 and giving it a B minus, you know, the stories I liked get an A, but the stories that made me roll my eyes are sort of the weaker end of the back half of the series thus far, probably pulling in a little bit more like a D themselves. So a B minus is a pretty solid place for this arc. But, you know, if I were to pull this quote unquote volume off of my shelf, I'd skip 80 without a doubt. I'd skip, I would probably skip family business. Yeah, I would probably skip it. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing to have read once and to remember and to think like, man, they really got it they really did get it a lot of the time and it was in their heads even if it didn't always get on the page but it's not really a a revisitor So when I say the term Ohatmu, I mean official handbook of the Marvel Universe, which is a time-honored tradition. At Marvel, they've been published since the 1980s. They were a great way to shorthand reality of the comic universe for fans before there were trades and the internet. And then, you know, they tried to keep them going for a while. But frankly, nowadays, this is the kind of stuff that should be available on Marvel.com and I have a feeling that the Ohat moves will probably resurface at some point on the Marvel Unlimited app. Yeah, I would love to see the concept revisited as a living encyclopedia that you could really trust to be relatively consistently updated. That was always my problem. I really loved official handbooks of the Marvel Universe. Like so many of them were useful to me in coming to understand continuity. But once you get to a certain age and level of knowledge, <clears throat> you do start 
start to almost dread revisiting certain ones because you know how wrong the information is at this point. Yes, absolutely. You do get into a situation where it's so tough when these are printed. Yeah, because they're not static. And that's the whole point. That's why we love them. The other part of it is before the internet, there was a lot less concern about continuity the way there is now. There, It was much more difficult. It was really only the diehards who both had all of the issues to look back on and the will to do so in some kind of discourse in which they were asked to that would go back and say, oh, you know, that's actually not correct. Here's what happened in X issue. Something like the official handbook of the Marvel Universe was kind of just an acceptable shorthand for readers to get the information and for Marvel to make sure they had it. And it leveled the playing field because as somebody with all of those issues growing up, I recognized readily how other people with the issues or who might have had more than I had would kind of weaponize it in a gatekeeper way. If you could get that same information from the back of a wizard magazine, it's the same information. And so where once upon a time these were vital, they are unfortunately now relics of a vaguely bygone era. And man, that that reality of the slice of what you're looking at is so fascinating. The list of characters they felt worth naming here is wild. Yep. Some of these characters getting like official names is so crazy. Aftershock. Who literally just appeared for the first time. First time. Like as this official handbook of the Marvel Universe is getting pumped. Like the fact that they actually were able to coordinate, don't forget to put this name in because she's going to be appearing by the time it comes out. It's wild. Absolutely wild. We have Angel Face who doesn't get a real name even though I think she has one. And we know it. I know we do. I just don't care so I don't have it memorized but you're right. We have Ant-Man who's Scott Lang. We have Apox, Argo, the Avengers who are credited as American Dream, Blue Streak, Crimson Curse, Freebooter or Brandon. <laughs> Brandon, just one. Name. Brandon. <laughs> He's really the Madonna of his time. <laughs> <laughs> we have J2, Zaniyama. We have Mainframe, Stinger, Thunderstrike. And yeah, I guess that's that's pretty solidly the Avengers. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Big Julie. Jesus Christ. That's, of course, the big monkey man. Black Tarantula, who is Fabian La Muerto. Blacklight, who has that amazing design. Buffer Zone. Buzz, Jack Jameson. Canis. I guess that must be his real name. Captain America. Cole Tiger. Crazy Eight. Cyclops. Scott Summers, really? Are you sure? Like, who Dark has not De appeared? He's going to appear in Last Year's Standing, but he hasn't appeared yet. We have Dark Devil, who is Riley Tyne. I feel it's unfair to not mention that he's also Daredevil and Zarathos. It is very unfair. We have the Defenders, who I, you know what? I don't know that I can even get through all of this. This is so many people. It's like yeah. Defenders, Doc Magus, Dragon King, Dragon King, Dragon King. Yep, who gets his name? <laughs> he gets his name, but not Angel Face. I love it. We have Earth Sentry, a Electro, Enthralla, who is credited as just Wingard, the Fantastic Five, Funny Face, who I need to be very clear about this. The Face family should have been all together. Yeah. Fury, Golden Goblin slash Green Goblin, Grim, Juggernaut, Kane, Lady Octopus, 
Lady Hawks, Loki, <laughs> Magneta, Mr. Abnormal, uh, Jesus, Electra Nachos, Nemesis, Nova, Benjamin Richard Parker, the baby. That's the baby. Oh, God, the fucking baby. That's the baby. I didn't even think about that. We have Peter Parker, Quickwire, Rad. I can't stand you. Raptor, who is credited as Brenda. Nice. Yeah, I really love that at a certain point. I'm just, I would kill to know what editor was like. You cannot ever refer to this character is Blackie Drago again. It is Brenda, and we're never going to speak of what happened before. Uh, absolutely. I'm shocked they didn't go in and change digital copies. Like, seriously. <laughs> the Revengers, who we know no longer exist because Big Man is reformed, but we have Big Man, Ion Man, Killer Watt, Red Queen, and Saberclaw. Notice how all of the Logan family are credited with the last name Logan because that would have been what they thought his name was at the time, like James Logan, but ultimately his name is revealed to be James Howlett, but yep. their names are given as Logan. Yep. So they're all still Logan, and they update him when he appears as James Howlett. Interesting. Scarlet Spider is credited as Felicity Hardy. We have Spider Girl, Spider Man, Jerry Drew. Hey, buddy. You How did you it. feeling? It's Jesus, Superstorm. I'm so mad. I'm so mad Taurus gets his Superstorm credit. I want anything but that. So annoying. Here's the only reason that makes me happy. I love the idea that at some point, Hyperstorm will tear his way through time and space and be like, my storm is bigger and more intense, you fucking child. We can only dream and hope because he is just absolutely, the worst. again, the worst character so, all right, we get Thor, Venom, Green Goblin, which, great, fine, double credit, I love it. Christoph Vernard, not credited as Doom, weird. Vibraxis, totally forgot about that guy, but now I remember him. He was one of the Black Panther's honor guard. Oh, yeah. Mary Jane Watson Parker, Agent Arthur Whedon, okay. The previously mentioned Wild Thing, Rena Logan, Wolverine, James Howlett, and then the X-People, Angry Eagle, Jubilee. Simeon, Spanner, Torque. But here's where it gets weird. The final person they felt necessary to mention is J2's mom. Not any of Mayday's friends who have had 30-something appearances. Not, you know, Foggy Nelson, who has had like a dozen appearances and is directly related to Norman now. No, J2's mom. Who, yeah, we have not seen in, in years of publishing at this point. It is a fascinating decision but i'm okay with it you know this list of characters is so many people and the dialogue the the narration attached to this universe is a really fascinating look at what the editors thought was important because somehow a next get twice as long as spider girl j2 the fantastic five and the x people combined it's really wild yeah i mean it speaks to that idea that this was not about Spider-Girl, this was about the MC2, but at this point, we know that's completely incorrect. I mean, maybe intention-wise that was the point at one time, but now the only thing that is left is Spider-Girl. It's been years since a companion title has been published. We are getting another one and maybe there's some hope there, but none of the other steps seem to be happening to capitalize on possible success of last year of standing 
marketing creating a desire for more books. So it's really odd that they treat it as though, you know, it's this alternate universe where all of these things are happening on equal time, when it is really the alternate universe that is hyper-focused on Spider-Girl, and when we're lucky, we get these little slices of other lives in her world. Yes, which is why the fact that the first paragraph is just What If 105, which we've spent so much time on her world, her friends, her family, that none of those things get mentioned is so weird to me. It does not feel like the people who wrote this entry really read the MC2. No, and another reason or like way I see that is the fact that the insane story of who Dark Devil is is tacked on at the end of the origin story paragraph of May. And some of the weird choices they make, like referring to Dark Devil as Mayday's mentor? Yeah. What a weird choice. I ultimately think that this MCU AU page, you know, they knew that Last Hero Standing was a weekly event in August. This was coming out in August or September. And, you know, Spider-Girl was at 88 issues. And I'm sure by issue 88, they knew they were getting 100. You know what I mean? Like, one more year, crank it out, hit 100. That's a significant number, you know, hardcover as well. But this really does not feel like they spent a whole lot of time thinking about what would make sense to get somebody interested in this universe. I went through the rest of this AU guide. It's got stuff like the Ascani timeline, the Crooked World from Marvel UK. It's got so many one or two appearance universes, so many joke universes. I don't really think they took this entry as seriously as we do. No, and that doesn't surprise me because again it's 2005 and we're talking about the mc2 i guess it surprises me a little only insofar as we have this event and last year standing and there's potential here i guess i'm just never really clear i would love to talk to editors and people that were involved at the time because i'm never really clear like are we hoping that some light shines through as we publish this that says to us let's expand let's do a little more and if we're not then how do we even even get things like deciding to do Last Hero Standing. And when it does surprisingly well compared to the only other book in the universe, what conversations are had after that? Maybe that's where we saw the possibility of multiple MC2 titles, which is what happens. You know, but by that point, they're really treating it all as from the pages of Spider-Girl, not the MC2 line. So it really, because man, you know, Last Hero Standing is one of the best things that the MC2 produced. So it's weird that they tried to capitalize on it in the least effective way possible. Yeah, and it's also just weird because at this point, the Ultimates line is expanding. We're getting to a point where we accept that reader sophistication is enough that that doing multiversal stuff where it's basically not optional, you have to accept that the multiverse exists and really pay attention to what's going, and have some broad understanding of what's going on in lines that aren't tied to you or the main one you're reading. It, it surprises me that there is this whole other universe that is not main 616 and not trying to be as edgy and modern as Ultimates was trying to be, but is kind of was for 
kids, all those kids are now grown up. We're in this weird limbo. You know, one of the many repeated phrases of the analysis of this show. There's just so much potential right now for the MC2. And I'm just so curious what conversations were being had. It seems impossible it's here. Like, I feel like we've been talking about Last Hero Standing since day one because it's something that really stood out in my memory that after 88 issues, they gave Spider-Girl this major weekly event, five issues, like a five-week event. Was this originally an arc that the editors really believed in? How did this happen? I really do not know. And for me, it's something that I've been looking forward to as this like thing on the horizon because, you know, as we were going over what what the read order was going to be for this and what we would be reading, we do get to that point where any other companion title to Spider-Girl is canceled and it's just Spider-Girl. And it is, from a reading perspective, this gulf of issues where you are reading nothing but Spider-Girl week after week. And to know that the thing on the horizon that was coming was Last Hero Standing. Like, if you just get through the 12 volumes of Spider-Girl, there's this thing that kind of reignites a new era of other stuff being published in this world. It was, you know, I wasn't necessarily looking forward to it because I had no expectations, but the idea that this happened, that there was this time where it was just Spider-Girl and then all of a sudden you get this series was really fascinating to me and I was really looking forward to understanding the content. And it's weird because I do think that this is plotted really tightly, yet the first few pages feel like they spend a really long time to give you a very basic sense of context. Like, I joke in my notes that it's like 10 pages before you get any... And it's, oh my God, Captain America, you are the grandpa that I want to make mine. Oh, oh, Steve. Steve, you look so good, Daddy. Yeah, he aged like fine wine. I'm so proud of you. Oh, shit, man. That rib cage. God, looking all sorts of Magneto, but a little bit more bumpkin. I'm into it. And that means that the other, like, eight pages of this introduction are the two reused pages. It's the Wolverine disappearing page. It's the Ladyhawk disappearing page from previous issues of Spider-Girl. It's then a page of the Watcher. Just being, like, Frank Miller levels of jacked Watcher which I'm really into, really buff fucking, it's like John Romita Jr. posed for it. And then we get a quick recap of Fantastic Four, Classic Avengers, Fantastic Five, A-Next, the Spider-Girl street-level characters. And then we see what amounts to a 1980s Chris Claremont danger room training scenario. Like, it's weird that that's 10 pages, but they keep it moving at a great clip. That's credit to the production team. Yeah, absolutely. I think it would be silly to suggest that you wouldn't do something like that because this really is going to be an onboarding point for new readers. If they were just diving in, I would think that they had given up before they had started and just had no hope but anybody but Spider-Girl diehards were going to be reading this. But instead, they really tried to craft something that, I mean, and it had to work because the retention point on this, when we look back at the numbers on Fantastic Five, on Wild Thing, the numbers dipped well below 50% of initial order for the fifth part. For this, the fifth part dipped less then God, like less than 20%. That's great, great numbers. They did a terrific job keeping people in from this introduction. I do think 
that I had a little trouble understanding exactly what was happening at first, everybody just being sucked into the ground, because I think I'd remembered this being a lot more secret warsy, and I ultimately know why, but that everybody just kept getting like sucked into the ground was a little lost on me at first. So that took me a second. Yeah, again, with no context, I was just kind of along for the ride. Sucked into the ground is really a specific one, and like giant hole in the forest or on the street, like mole man sinkhole, who knows, vibes, sure, I can believe it. Wanda. Hospital room. <laughs> Wanda in the hospital room, which I assume is not on the ground floor. So it's like she sucked through multiple floors into like the subterranean area. It's like it's such an MC2 visual cue in which you're like, well, everybody's getting sucked into the earth. So like even this character who is in probably not near the earth has to go nowhere but down. And where else is there to go? I mean, Scarlet which has been in like seven pages of this whole fucking universe and she is in the most like kind of generic take on her Busick Perez Avengers era look like this is not a great series for her she is sidelined and forgettable and then here she is just getting abducted away I feel like a lot of this setup this first issue smacks and bangs for me so well because I can imagine reading it as a person who's not a big MC2 person. And I would feel like I don't really have to explain more to you, like as an MC2 person, like MC2 Nico is talking to not MC2 Nico. And he's like, no, no, but this introduction really makes it clear. You don't need to read more. And like, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And it's fun. It's silly. The core characters are all right in the game. We're trying to figure out what the mystery is. It hits the ground running. That's the only thing it really needs to do. And one of the things that this does so well is it gives me a reason to believe in Spider-Man. I kind of need a reason to believe in Spider-Man. That's something that we've said from the jump with this series. Neither one of us is the biggest Peter Parker person. So we're in this for the love of the idea of this series, but Peter Parker kind of throwing himself immediately into harm's way, which is reckless and not a great thing for his child, you know, granted, but I was genuinely charmed by his immediate instinct to save his current superhero friend Phil he you know Peter Parker stepped up fucking Spider-Man through and through yeah and I think this is one of those places where that absolutely makes sense to show I think sometimes we see it in the pages of Spider-Girl at times and places where our instinct as readers is to say no this is May's story Peter is great but maybe find the right place for this moment where he can't stop being Spider-Man this is just basically a level playing field for all MC2 heroes that he would have a moment where things got dicey and the only way he could deal with it was doing Spider-Man stuff. I love that. I love that as a concept. It's just time and place. This is the perfect time. And this whole, like, the street levels unite and they run into the Avengers kind of vibe. Like, yeah, this was exciting. I felt like, oh my God, yeah, all of the different heroes of the MC2 would converge if all of the heroes are disappearing. Like, and that they know that Lady Hawk has disappeared kind of helps give me a sense of the timeline. It's not all too overlapped. There was something that felt exciting and charming about this series, seeing Peter dragged off. Now, I think on some level, I might have remembered that Loki was behind this miniseries ultimately but either way I would have known by the armor on the thing that abducts Peter it feels very the destroyer it has a lot of Asgard influence on it so I would have gotten there but yeah this was exciting you know the 
Avengers were called together in the first place by Loki and DeFalco is a, you know, like we keep saying, he's a company man. So he's going to care about that. This feels like a grand Marvel tradition story. Yes. And I think there's so much that we are willing to support in MC2 storytelling when it is removed from the balance of Mayday's ledger. We have seen the Avengers and, you know, the Warriors and Fantastic Five. Like we've seen convergence of teams and characters and interactions between them and conflict. But a lot of times it just feels like this is too many characters on the page for what is a Mayday Parker story. And they're usually happening in the midst of a time where it's like, we we actually really don't have time for these people. Stuff is going on with May that I'm invested in because this is her book. And I'd like to keep it focused on that. And, you know, I love Stinger and I love Mainframe, whatever. But if it's not their book, I'm never going to be able to get enough of them to be satisfying. And then they're also taking time away from May. So she's not getting her full due. This being a completely agnostic zone where anybody who's involved, it's not taking away from anybody else. That's a really important thing to have. And the fact that it is so exciting speaks to the fact that there's a lot of vitality in these characters as a whole. Yes. Like I was trying to think if there was something I could add, but all I can really say is, yeah, you know, there is a vitality to this universe. You want to see these characters thrive and you want to see them get that chance to be developed and have that perspective. But I think the opening page of Last Hero Standing number two says it all. We have a list of characters, too many to eyeball the number of. It's, I think, something like, geez, 40. They list so many different heroes with so many different team affiliations. When the only one whose name is on the cover every month is Spider-Girl, it's really hard to imagine these characters with that level of agency. Yeah, and it's easy to imagine. It's difficult to see put into practice because, again, the book is not even Spider-Girl and her amazing friends despite those last pages. It's May's book. We spend a lot of time developing her stuff. And whenever we shift away from that, it is a tough balancing act. And she is responsible for giving an avenue to every single other character that we've met in MC2 for 12 volumes. And it isn't fair to her and it's not fair to those characters. So this is just such a reprieve that we get a book in which it doesn't take anything away from May, no matter how much time we spend just ogling old daddy Steve in the mirror. And, you know, the number of characters we're expected to interact with on this last hero standing character list, it's a significant number of Avengers, a number of characters from previous titles. But most notably, what I find really important is this page seeks to elevate characters by showcasing them as people relevant to this second issue. I don't know that I necessarily agree that Jubilee really warrants being on the same row and the same level of importance as Spider-Man or Wolverine. I think that she is only marginally smaller than Spider-Girl, who is, while admittedly Spider-Girl is, you know, Pauline and she's the center square. Like, she's in the middle, but like, it's Pauline. She's the center square. It's awkward. Nobody wants to look at it. She feels not that important in her own list. Yeah, but, you know, it's not her list. It's everybody's list. And May not being important might be the most important thing for her right now because she has been carrying the weight for too long on her own. Yeah, okay. And I'm here for that. I do feel, like, again, really, really positive on this miniseries. It's one of the most exciting things about the MC2 universe 
Nice. So if I had one disappointment in this opening sequence, it's that I kind of thought from maybe the cover and then seeing this big list of characters and knowing that this is a trick that Marvel loves to use, I sort of got a sense of like days of future past and sort of hope this would be like a Deadpool and crossing characters off the list. And then it wasn't that. So I was maybe a little disappointed. Yeah, I feel that. The fact that we open into a Dormagus and Stephen Strange vignette is maybe the saving grace for me insofar as I love these characters. And again, they are characters who... I want to see more of them. It's difficult to do that in the pages of Spider-Girl. They actually, um, Dormagus works out better than a lot of characters because it's one single dude most of the time. Steven pops in and is like, you're bad at your job. Here's some extra info. But you you can get a lot for just Dormagus. It's tougher when, when the team show up and it's like, we got to juggle all these characters in May. So, you know, them getting a little moment here. Again, it's just a reminder that the MC2 has every single corner that the 616 has and there's potential for storytelling and all of them when there's the ability to do so. And this is, you know, that blank canvas in which we're going to do all of it for fun. And I feel like, you know, that opening sequence of Dormagus and Strange is particularly exciting because they both don't really get a fair shake. And this version of Strange is unidentifiable to the then modern version of Strange or to the most recent iteration of Strange in our timeline. What's a little bit more like I guess, is the Captain America Thunderstrike sequence. And this is so silly. And I know it sounds like I'm splitting hairs, but like I just watched Cap be kind of not great at training around the Avengers last issue. And I already know he has a pre-established relationship with Thunderstrike from their time in the alternate dimension. So this just doesn't really add anything. Something in a universe like MC2 where space is it's such a commodity is you need to sort of balance showing me with talking like you could just have Thunderstrike and Cap stand next to each other and I'd be like well of course because of their time together but I didn't need them exchanging I maybe would have liked to have seen Stinger have a special moment with Cap or you know Shannon have a special moment with Cap something that would escalate another relationship in favor of one that I just have to keep preloaded because of all of the things we've already said where the responsibility is on Spider-Girl for everything and then a few panels every couple of years for everything else. Yeah, and the two options are your situation in which you know all of this and you don't need the extra interaction because nothing is added here. Or you don't know that these two have a pre-existing relationship and this particular set of panels really does nothing for you. This isn't a fundamental relationship for the team. It's not a fundamental relationship for either of them. It doesn't propel the plot forward. The repeated beat of Steve's getting a little old. We already know that one. It only really takes one panel to get there and it could have been with anybody. So it is always a balancing act how you're going to use the page time. It's really, really limited. And I think there are a lot of times in which as two people who have been studying this and know everything about the MC2 backgrounds, we'll see things. I mean, like, and you know, we were perfectly forgiving of the first 10 pages, which told stuff that we knew completely, because of course that makes sense. There are times where if it doesn't make sense for us as old hat readers and it 
doesn't make sense for new readers who aren't going to care, you start to question what might have been better served in this page space. Because one of the things that this page space does do that I appreciate is they give me a reasonable way to interpret what's going on. Like you say, oh, it could be the Mole Man. It could be the Living Lava Man. It could be Kala, Queen of the Underworld or Tyrannus or Terax. And I appreciate getting all of those characters shown. You know, this is realistic, but then that's everything Jubilee contributes is kind of like here. But man, that Rena J2 panel, number one, now I ship them. Why? Because they look cool together. Because her hair is the hair of an asshole. But you know what? His shorts aren't much better. So let them be assholes together. And I, God, she has asshole hair. You know what I mean? Well, also just consider sitting behind her at a movie theater and she knows. Oh, she knows. She's pulled enough popcorn out of her hair to know. You know what I mean? I really do think that that J2 Rena panel justifies the whole project and our weird attachment to the X side of things. It's so silly, but there's something romantic about that panel to me. Like my like uh like literary romance, not like oh, I'm in love with it. Like, you know, it's not an alarm clock. Don't be crazy. But I'm super attached to the idea that these characters really could have some sort of value valid, believable, enjoyable relationship, like as friends, as comrades, as people who share legacies uh, in the universe of the X-Men. It's really a pleasure to see that sort of thought put into drawing out a panel like that. I completely agree. And again, that's where our investment comes in. We have seen them have interactions with their parents. We've seen them interact together. We know their pre-existing relationship. We know the shorthand that they might have. We can fill in blanks about times that they've seen each other since the last time we saw them together on panel. So the idea that this is a person that she feels comfortable going to and saying, oh, our fucked up extended family, huh? At least we've got each other completely. And it's that sense of family, we've got each other, that makes this book definitively magical for me. Like, it's why this miniseries has me so excited when the Avengers, you know, our buddy Brandon goes with American Dream and visits Hawkeye, who I just forgot about, I guess. Like, when they're like, oh, Hawkeye. I'm like, oh, right, Kate? Oh, the boy one, fine. And, like, he's here now. It's a really interesting way that they, like, kept some chess pieces off the board still to bring up later. And, you know, we get the arbitrary family sequence with Mary Jane and May. But where it really hits me is in the underground maze where they're all just like, well, if she jumped through, I guess we're jumping through. They are a family. They're like, somehow they know that they're the last vestige of this universe or something. Yeah, I don't know. It, this was something that I thought about. Like the entirety of 616 Heroes at no point ever feels like a family. Like even in huge cross crossover moments where like I, I feel like the last time there's a crossover in which they're all in agreement and on the same side is literally Onslaught and even then they don't feel like a family because half of them stay and half of them go and then after Onslaught they're always like the Avengers always think something different than the X-Men they're always not sure what to do they're in fighting all the time they don't
don't feel like a family. It seems like a very complex professional network. With the heroes of MC2, it just feels like the the fact that so many of them are legacies, the fact that so many of them are like massive fuck-ups when they start, it just feels like they have an understanding and care for each other that even when they frustrate each other and they don't agree, there is a general understanding that everyone is trying their best. And when it comes to a certain point, they all are going to put up or shut up and act like a cohesive unit or just lose. And they're very good at losing. They do it a lot. They really do. But when they team up, it's just so sweet. Yeah, I very, very, very agree. All of your points are super well taken, and I think it's sort of manifested in Loki's plan. One of the things that Loki gives us that I think is just ridiculous is the most compelling reason for the Marvel Civil War to happen ever. I cannot tell you how much more... Like, I don't even need it to be that the heroes don't have that kind of shit in their heart, but like how violent they all became with each other so instantly. If you could just have... There was something making them a little more violent than they otherwise would have been. I can forgive a lot, a lot more easily. And it's not that I don't want them to have these political ideologies, but then I can't rubber band them back to where they're supposed to be right after you're done fucking with the core of the character's identity. And this sort of Loki just vaguely poisons these characters is such a fine, tiny little detail that makes, it's just, that it's just that difference between great now I kind of hate these people and yeah they always sucked but if you amp up their suck this makes a lot of sense yeah it's a brilliant plot device because it doesn't give you the you're totally off the hook you were possessed but it doesn't make you irredeemable What I do find a little, not irredeemable, but frustrating is the somewhat misleading covers of this series. The second cover has May standing up to Cap in what looks like the Avengers compound, but the only time she really stands up to Cap is in the labyrinth when she goes through the portal and he's like, young lady, I said go home. And he's like, no, dude, you're old. Go sit behind your shield and take a nap. Like, so then the cover of number three has Spider-Man punching Dark Devil and it's not that that doesn't happen but there's a weird sort of misrepresentation of where the focus in this story is and I understand that Heroes Punching Heroes makes more sales and we keep comparing this to Civil War and I I want that comparison but like the emotional core of this story is so much better than the Heroes Punching Heroes that's the one place this went flat was it just kind of becomes Hulk versus everyone at some point and none of that just the heroes punching heroes never has a dynamic taut sense of action yeah because it's not really there's no greater purpose or story to it it really is just a plot function and it works it super duper works but it doesn't take me where I need it to go something I appreciate though is that since this is still the book that is next month you know this is a weekly event next month this is still going to be spider girl's universe having so much from Peter and Mary 
Mary Jane's perspective does give Spider-Girl that end to the story. But also, that's just true of a giant crossover event like this in the regular Marvel Universe. It would just be Peter and Mary Jane's perspective for no reason. Yeah, of course. They are still that iconic couple. So the part of the emotional core that I care much more about is the battle in the other dimension where the heroes are forced to make some really weird decisions like when Spider-Girl decides that she is a frog backpack and is going to be worn out of battle by J2. I love that. Great image. But like that Cap is like, no, wild thing. You won't torture him. Like I is he sundowning? I don't know exactly what's happening. And it's the one place that the emotional core loses me is this one fight sequence. But I get why this fight sequence is necessary to move the plot forward. I get why it's necessary to move the plot forward. It's unfortunate because there's not going to be a lot made from this. But man, it's a shining moment for Rena, who I think loves to talk a big game and be an edgelordier version of her dad who maybe actually enjoys the the fight more than he'll ever admit or sorry I should say talks like she enjoys the fight more than she'll ever admit but you know her claws aren't physical claws she's not doing the same thing that Wolverine is doing and she has two very moral parents I think she's an incredible warrior I think she's very talented but I think that front of you know I love to fuck shit up and I'll do anything to get to my dad is just how she talks tough because she has really really a tough legacy to live up to and it just it's an interesting moment for her that just makes me want to see more of her makes me want to expand on this and cap kind of throwing a wrench in it is an interesting next step to take it but there's not really time to do more with it so it just comes off as this weird thing where he maybe doesn't understand that psychic claws are different than metal claws but that does make the reveal or the payoff i have I got choked up, but then it was fireworks. Anyway, so, okay, we'll get there. But I think it it's one of those things where he's like, do I really know battle well enough anymore? Like, I wish we had time for these characters to think all the things I think for them. Yeah. Because I think, again, it's something we say, DeFalco believes it's there. That has to be the case because he later on relies on you having already made those emotional connections for him. And not that that's a problem, but he then has to think that you're going to make these connections. So like, I'm hoping it's that it's Cap sees his time as a soldier is over. Yeah. And I mean, I definitely get that part of it. It We're, we're seeing the beat of bunch of times the person my eye is drawn to most often in the story is either cap or rena and i feel like one of them it's being telegraphed like oh their time is really up and one of them they're getting telegraphed like isn't this such an interesting and cool character don't you see so many facets to how she could grow and change and become like her dad the most successful hero in the marvel universe and it's just like it's really easy to give the character that's coming to a close the closure and it's very difficult to give the one with all the potential her next step and we get the closure and we definitely don't get the next step and we get even a little bit more of this sort of string along mislead covers and they're not really even misleading exactly you know issue three ends with ahaha now all the heroes are going to brawl in new york and this is before civil war 
and it gives us such a clear view of what's going to come in its own weird way. And issue four's cover has Thor, what looks like striking down in New York in front of a everybody Jim Chang levels of young looking Captain America and Thunderstrike. They look like babies. And this scene doesn't, not only does it not happen in this issue, but I felt perhaps like this issue needed to either be a tie-in that also had some Spider-Girl stuff going on. I don't know. But this one, I kept being like, okay, leave Asgard, guys. All right, you've been in Asgard forever. Leave Asgard. Yeah, like just we get out of here quicker because we have made clear where the good stuff is happening. And this is a limited series. We got to go right to the good stuff wherever it's happening. Because once we see Thor in issue four, we already knew he was going to appear. He's on the cover. And if we're fucking around with Loki and Hulk is now evil, then yeah, it's going to take Thor to mess with Hulk and Loki, so Thor is the right guy to bring in. So delaying it any further really feels unceremonious. There are some still really cool twists I did not see coming, though. Go on. That the whole thing is, oh no, they've made Hulk a victim of Loki, and now anybody who's fighting each other, you know, there's this whole, oh man, they might kill each other out of evil. But there's this realization at one point that, like, somebody might kill Hulk to stop him. And like, oh man, there's still this possibility that Loki could win because of the melee, because of the wild of what's going on not even because anybody has too much malice in their heart but like this is a pretty complex situation and again i think this is one of those moments that really spoke to me in terms of defalco understanding the fundamentals of superheroes particularly marvel superheroes this is a thing that comes up in the main universe this idea that hulk is the biggest threat a huge threat a problem and that at a certain point killing him is the smartest and safest thing to do and no matter how unpalatable it gets into that punisher debate of like do you kill the bad guy to stop them from doing more but it really is this thing of like this is a destructive force it is attached to a person and that's really problematic but we've got to do something that is a fundamental part of the marvel universe that is a story that you have to revisit every now and then when hulk tensions escalate to a certain point and the fact that defalco understands that and makes that one of the central underpinnings of the plot of this story just really was a moment that spoke to me and gave me that like I might not always love the details I might want to see things done differently but one of the reasons this whole thing works and that you fall in love with it and you fall in love with these characters is that understanding of the fundamental truly and the pacing the timing knowing how to continue progressing things in a way that you know I may be saying that I would trim 10 pages, but that's one of the things that sort of sucks about format and playing in somebody else's sandbox. Every issue had to be, you know, either 22 or 24 pages. They didn't have the ability to say, I would rather tell this in 430 page issues. Like, and that's that's the frustration of sometimes these big two comics, especially, you know, 20 years ago, being so beholden to format because the escalating danger of Hulk is made potent in a way that I do find a little eh, all right like I find myself kind of shrugging like every hero against Hulk really but then I'm like World War Hulk came like three years after this yeah all right okay um 
it does help that they'll attack him one at a time very politely by some sort of rules of engagement that I'm not sure I understand. But there is definitely... All right, there's some ability to make me believe that Hulk getting repeatedly re-energized by Loki could present a serious threat, especially if the other heroes are temporarily sand-possessed and thrown off. Well, and also, you know, they want to stop him, but they don't want to kill him. So each time they approach him, it's got to be with strategy to take him out, but not kill him. And then that increasingly becomes, you know, the tension of that no longer being the goal or that not being possible is one of the things that for me definitely really works about this. I just feel like it's the nerfing of Franklin for me. Oh, but that's decades old. I mean, that's years old at this point. The Franklin starts off so nerfed that it's weird and uncomfortable and part of the reason that the Fantastic Five doesn't. It's built into this universe. But like when we started this universe, we're told like Franklin is still Franklin. Like he's not Franklin Richards put everybody in a bubble, but he's like Franklin Richards might be able to put most things in a pre-made box. And now he's sort of like Franklin Richards trying to get everybody in the bag and it's not the look I want like he just I feel like Franklin Richards in the first three volumes of Spider-Girl could for like five minutes strainingly increasingly under strain plus psychic help from everybody around him could hold the Hulk back and here he just doesn't even put up a fight like it's he's just it's so funny too because the way he's defeated is straight up star lord at one point in this arc you know he gets defeated by the in the battle with apox because he gets distracted by jake and it throws off his concentration so apox can get a strike in it's just like so many baby mistakes for franklin in the last 15 issues yeah i don't know i just he's so not recognizable as being a version of the Franklin that we know from 616 and then is so incompetent and unlikable and silly. The only time we get a window into his life in Fantastic Five, he's a fucking douchebag who, like, music is his passion, but it's not at all. And it's just the weirdest. I have no belief in or love for Franklin. And he is a perfect example of one of the characters that, because there has been so little time to develop him in anyway and it has had to be almost entirely through the pages of spider girl there's nothing about him being franklin richards the bender of all reality that feels believable to me i feel like there's some untold story in which he was completely nerfed and he's still really powerful but not god stopping that is really fair part of my sliding frustration is like i know loki is super duper powerful my favorite loki is probably gillen's kid loki my second favorite Lokis, probably, you know, some version of the modern Loki that can't help but be a like... All right, I don't want to make this a Thor podcast, but Uh-oh. like I have a lot of feelings about Loki and Thor's relationship. And at the end of the day, for me, Loki is always going to sacrifice himself to save Thor at the last second. It's, you know, it's not realistic. And I feel like he'll do it three out of seven times. And those other four times he really lets me down and breaks my heart. And I just want more from him than that. And so I accept that in the course of those four out of seven times where Loki does the thing that breaks my heart, he is 
probably pushed to some maddeningly dark places by power. And there's a number of places I could cite, and I'm not going to for the sake of everybody who is doing some mighty Thor rereads or first reads in accordance with the film. And I have a really hard time with unless this Loki has been furiously building power a la Frau Totenkinder binding herself to the apartment building. I really, really struggle with Loki taking on everybody mystically and amping up Hulk to take on everyone physically. And then Dormagus and this vi- this vizier who is like, oh, by the way, um, um, that guy's possessed. Stop that. Uh, all right, let's go unpossess some other people. Stop that. Who is this guy? He's like sorcerer. Sor- is he the one above, above, above all? Is he like, is he three above? Is he the guy on the third floor? This is where we really start to get into like, that's just MC2 rules, baby. Like it's so not the concept of how things ought to work. And it's one of those things where it's Loki. Like it, it, despite the fact that this is an alternate universe, nothing is so fundamentally different that the rules should be as different as they appear to be as we resolve this. But this is how DeFalco's Loki works, I guess. And I stand by my, you know, general statement that I accept that this is a version of Loki. Loki can be this powerful. It's a lot that it's everything happening here at once, but it also led me to a realization that was like a meta-contextual realization that I'm not sure was intentional, but it's there. And, you know, if it's there, it's there, whether it was intentional or not. This is the saddest iteration of the Age of Heroes I have ever found. You know, one of the things that makes a dystopian universe powerful is that the heroes rise up against this overwhelming sadness that is the crushing oppression that took them down. There's, you know, I'm a pig. I used to cosplay the hell out of some Hunger Games. Oh, God. (laughs) And so, like, I love that kind of shit. If you want to struggle against some darkness, you know, sounds really dumb, but it's one of the same reasons I root so hard for Liz Lemon at the beginning of 30 Rock. When your dream is destroyed, how do you hold on to the light? You find a way. And then all of a sudden, the things that you've always dealt with, Jenna, are irreversibly exacerbated by things like Jack, but Jack's the most extreme version of something you've dealt with. Tracy is just from another planet. And that's something that I can always get behind, this idea of overcoming something. But this is not a post-dystopian world. This is not some, you know, crooked world, Jasper's warp market. This is not Days of Future Past. This is, by all reads, vaguely the real world outside your door. And the thing that I came to realize by reading this is the MC2 Age of Heroes is so sad and so unfilled with heroes that anytime just a few of them are missing, like when the Fantastic Five weren't available to help fight Apox, the world almost ended. When most of the heroes were in one building to plan how to stop the serpent god Set, Set locked them away and there weren't enough other heroes to save the day. This is the saddest iteration of the Age of Heroes. There's more villains than there are good guys and the good guys are so wrapped up in the notion of dynastic bureaucracy. Like they're all so worried about signing papers and dotting eyes that they're in many cases frozen with impotence and man this really made it so clear for me seeing how few characters there even were to fight each other. How few super 
heroes there are to fight each other. We made jokes about how many characters are listed in the two or three different places. We had lists of characters. But that's it. That's everyone. That's every fucking hero, except for maybe the vaguely appropriative kung fu heroes from that early issue of J2. This universe posits that there's this really beautiful sweet spot in which you can superhero so perfectly, where you have grown up and made some mistakes, but you're not out of the game yet. And unless you are in that sweet spot with a lot of other people that to join you, you are either a complete fuck up that's just starting out or you are aging out of the game. We see May just stumble so often. May is not the hero that New York can look to to save them. She's amazing. I love her. She's really trying and she gets through it a lot of the time, but I'm not confident in May's ability. The only reason I'm confident that things will resolve is because I know the story has to keep going. I don't find it plausible that May will always save the day the way I used to with Spider-Man. But Spider-Man had a run of it for a while and now is old and so consumed with adult life. It's like this reverse Peter Pan syndrome. I don't know. It's so weird. It's like he's not even that old, but the vitality for saving lives has been so sucked out of him that even though he could technically still do it, he retired and continues to retire and almost be desperate for May to do the work for no other reason, but it's like he can't conceive of how to be a hero anymore at like, I really feel like not even 40. I feel like 35. It's such a complicated thing because the part that breaks my heart is like, this is sort of like what our dads thought the world they created kind of looked like. You know, if the Marvel Universe was a shit show, guys, you were the the architects for a while. And I don't believe that that's a judgment or an indictment of them as men or their ability. The thing I may be trying to say is there wasn't enough belief in the myth gods of Marvel back in the day. And we've seen a lot of, you know, sorcerers, just fucking outright mystics come through and create pantheonic lore that is the heart of Marvel. And it's guys like Hickman and it's voices that do the bold thing every single month like Vita Ayala with New Mutants and like we are seeing the deification and the canonization of these ideas now but looking back at what our forefathers thought is startlingly sad in some ways. It's sad. I think there's also a degree to which if we say it's a god, it's a god, and that should be enough for you. And I think part of what makes it so difficult is having seen in the ensuing time so many writers come through and say, uh, you know, some guys before me said it was a god, but it's wearing a little thin. And if I'm going to keep writing the story and ask you to believe that, I better do some work to make you believe that it's a god. Yeah. And you know, speaking of work that makes me believe in gods, I found the ending of Last Hero Standing hyper effective in a weird, weird way. Ultimately, the defeat of Loki is fucking weird. Hulk just goes, you've ruined me for this planet. I'm going to torture you for eternity. And just charges in and decides that he is going to torture Loki 
for eternity in limbo in limbo where thor has the power to send people because he's got the odin allspark power so i guess he has full access to all of the dimensions of yadrasil i didn't realize limbo was one of them but here we are well we also have the weirdest misdirect of all time (laughs) okay so loki lies to captain america about the good guys losing and then immediately thor is like that's not what happened and loki's like maybe and then is just defeated and then cap's like hey we won and i'm like what was the point of that exchange like i get that he's loki Liebringer, but like i don't think jeff the god of biscuits only serves biscuits yeah i mean you were talking about how you could see the potential for this to be 10 pages shorter and you were also talking about a point that could have been maybe like a tie-in issue i really think cutting out some of this and putting it in an additional issue or a tie-in issue like a great standalone would have been a really good companion piece to this but to give some more page space to letting some of these story beats and especially like villain character beats breathe in a way that just to have something that put this much effort in and gathered all these heroes together have a weird like silly difficult to understand explanation in a couple panels at the end just I get why that stuff has to happen and why sometimes there's just a misstep when it comes to realizing how much page space you have to explain what's left it's just unfortunate because I think there was a way to get there and it seems like maybe by the time they realized that they might want to try and shift things up there just wasn't a way to do it I genuinely however find the death of Captain America at the end of what is essentially Civil War hmm, really effective I am heartbroken by his death actually and you know his speech that you know it was a privilege to serve with you all there's people I kind of wish weren't here no offense Vision you've played no role in this series you're mainframe Uh, get out of here yeah I would rather mainframe like mainframe showing an emotion like crying an oil tear would have just been (laughs) (laughs) you know Rena kind of I think there's uh, there's something so stupid like Spider Girl recognizes what she's seeing you know what I mean like I can't imagine she doesn't that look on her face isn't confusion it's heartbreak and knowing that this is a man that her father fought alongside and that it could have been her father and I think that's some ways what Stinger is also experiencing though Stinger was also a comrade yeah but Rena is realizing for the first time that she just watched like essentially a god die yeah and because you know this isn't I'm not going to assume that this Rena knows all about weapon plus you know what I mean no this Rena doesn't know anything this Rena is like and is maybe even younger than May and for everything her parents have taught her about skills and probably told her about what to expect she has not had to practically apply a lot of stuff it's one of the things I love about her. I would probably just take either Vision or Hawkeye out and put J2 in there yeah you know something like that but seeing Thunderstrike when I made that comment earlier about Thunderstrike and you know saying I wish it was Stinger or Shannon and then here they both are yeah you know this really affected me and I actually have like a funny problem with the Thor moment it's a little bit the everybody raise your wands Dumbledore isn't dead moment from that Harry Potter film yeah but there's something like I wish it said something like and now he is the god of freedom or like now he is the spirit of because if fucking Daredevil can magically become Zarathos's equal Captain America can become some spirit of freedom because otherwise he's 
literally like I have taken my friend's soul and turned it into a firework. Yeah. I would have maybe done like, you know, it imbued the power into American dream or something like now this will be a legacy that can live on into anybody that takes the America mantle. But yeah, I think you're exactly right. Like, come on, give us give us a productive gift here. I, we, this guy's fine on its own. I mean, do you ever feel like a plastic bag blowing in the wind, hoping to start again? You know, I that's all the words to that song. I yeah, know. no, I, I know. And I don't even know that that's all the I don't think I got them right. But, you know, Watcher, Jacked Watcher. I love Jacked Watcher. I'm going to start calling him Jack D. Watcher. He shows up in art by like Frank Miller a lot. But uh, here too, real buff dude. Hey, Watcher, you're looking great, right? I probably like my Watcher a little bit like softer. Like, I like him a little bit like, hey, guys, I'm here to look at stuff. But like, I mean, I love the idea that 616 Watcher is that. And the Watcher that has been assigned to this universe is just like some Jack dude that's like, they don't really do much. So I can lift most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I see that for him. And I love that he does say that this is like a star now. Like a star is born and, um, you know, these heroes are in the sha-la-la-la-lo. So this is a really fascinating ending because once Hulk was like, I'm going to torture you forever. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking weirdest moment ever. I'm once ruined on Earth. How I'll is never that get done? a date again. I, I can't. I can't. I can't. It, it is a very strange lick of dialogue and it writes the Hulk out in a way that, you know what? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Any previous generation hero is completely expendable. We know they can always come back if we desperately need them for something, which you know, we know we're not going to when it comes to MC2 stuff. But it sometimes getting a moment of like, and now we will never have to have a stupid Hulk fight again is a nice reprieve in a universe that promises new stuff. Because one of the things we've commented on is this particular version of the Hulk is in a lot of ways tricky to figure out for us. He's just been so ill-defined yeah and he looks like he's rotting away and aging in real time in his hulk body again because we talked about what's going to be coming up for him in stuff like world war hulk this seems like the way he's written here you would expect that he would be like this enormous insane unstoppable force completely like vital and frightening but instead it's just like this weird old hulking man that you're told is very powerful and then the plot revolves around that idea but I'm never convinced. No, and yet at the same time I feel like I'm being told that these older generation of heroes are still completely vital and completely necessary yet in this story we transitioned two of them out that played really pivotal roles. You made the Deus Ex Machina a character that has exclusively played the role of Deus Ex Machina in this universe multiple times. I feel like perhaps Spider-Girl lost a little bit of agency, but I think I'm looking at it simultaneously as a Spider-Girl book and as the MC2 crossover event I waited for. And that's not fair to look at anything as. I need to look at them separately. How did this work for me as a Spider-Girl crossover? And how did this work for me as the MC2 book I've been waiting for? For me, as a Spider-Girl crossover, like this was average levels of a character in a 
a crossover. Like this is the kind of shit they would do to Robbie Reyes. Like for me, if this is, how did you feel about Spider Girl's first time in a major event? Um, see, yeah, I mean, it's nothing for Spider Girl. This is, of course, she had to be there. She's the only one still printing books in this universe right now. But I mean, this really, and that, and that's such a funny thing. This really wasn't her story, but how could it not have been? Because she's the only character that's going to return to telling stories after this. This had nothing particularly to do with her. There's no real reckoning about Peter and his mortality and his contribution to heroing because we've already done a lot of those stories. You know, that moment that you mentioned where May sees that what happened to Steve could have happened to Peter. I mean, that's such a beautiful interpretation. I think you're absolutely right, but that's not said. This is nothing. I mean, the funniest moment is her riding J2 as a backpack. That is one of my favorite moments. But the rest of it, it's just like, there's no way we could actually do this story and not include her. Yeah, that is the really tough negotiation of a thing like this. Now, how do I feel about this as the MC2 crossover I've been waiting for since What If 105? A, like, for what I wanted out of the MC2, for what I know the MC2 is capable of. And that's the other thing. I've been at this for 175 issues. I know what the MC2 is capable of and where it's going to fall short. For what the MC2 can deliver on the regular, this is an A. Yeah, I think that's correct. And, you know, for me, I guess I don't really care that it's not a good Spider-Girl story, and I probably should because, again, the point that I just made, she's the only one that's going to continue telling story. I mean, we're going to get some other stories, but, like, she has next month an issue coming. Nothing else does. When this ends, it's a minute before any other story gets published in the MC2 line. So, ostensibly, this should be important for her. I guess maybe it's the fact that it's coming out of this chasm of pure Spider-Girl, Spider-Girl only stories in which we've gone from like rapid fire character and plot development to absolutely no plot development, you know, some amazing six issue arcs, some terrible single issue stories to just shift gears and go entirely into this giant ensemble cast. The fact that the one character that will continue on immediately from that wasn't really an integral part of that, I guess maybe is a lost opportunity, but because so many other opportunities got picked up on, on balance it just doesn't end up mattering to me, and you know, I feel the same way about the grading, but I'm really happy with the how I feel about the story on its own. And, you know, I'm gonna back up what you're saying with some numbers. We're 18 months away from any other title in Spider-Girl as a universe. I mean, it's another year of Spider-Girl regular, then there's Last Planet Standing, which is another miniseries event then there's like a month off and a spider girl zero and then when we come back with uh, amazing spider girl she's joined by avengers next so it's a really long time before there is another title alongside spider girl and not that i am diminishing the you know magnitude of a crossover but we're saying how a crossover like this doesn't allow you the opportunity to really develop and flesh out your characters so you know if we're talking about when is the next chance a character is going to get to get developed yeah it's a year and a half away. Yeah, that makes it tough because maybe this ought to have been a bigger focus on May and a more important story for her because she's got to carry the universe for the next 18 months. But I don't know, I guess I'm so used to her being 
in that position and forgiving the shortcomings when the opportunities that she ought to have don't come to fruition. That, you know, because we have this great crystallized moment of ensemble cast story, I love that for what it is. And we have a really crazy ride ahead of us. Our remaining 80 or so issues, that's it, is going to break out across five episodes. Our next episode sees us finish the first volume of Spider-Girl and take a look at Last Planet Standing. From there, we're going to take a look at two volumes of Amazing Spider-Girl alongside Avengers Next. Then Spider-Girl is going to be joined by American Dream and the Fantastic Five, who somehow wrangled themselves another miniseries. We're going to close out Amazing Spider-Girl with a little help from Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man, a miniseries event that ran through the pages of Spider-Man Family, helping to bridge the gap between the point at which the MC2 started in Marvel canon and the start of the MC2 only lasted four issues because the demand to bring back Spider-Girl was so great. Our final episode will see 15 issues of Spectacular Spider-Girl plus the final issue Spider-Girl The End. Crazy to think, you know, you list that and on the one hand it sounds like a lot, but because I have in my head everything that's come before, it really isn't that much. Yeah, we've done more than twice what we have left. Yeah. So, you know, and then from there, we still have other chances to take a look at some of these characters, whether it's through the continuity heavy, admittedly, Marvel proper spider crossovers, or the much easier to look at Captain America Corps and Thunderstrike minis by Tom DeFalco, which see American Dream from the MC2 and Kevin from the 616 universe kind of become his counterpart in stories that were clearly just really Tom having a really good time with some of his former characters and you know I'm getting nostalgic already we're so close to Spider-Girl 100 that it feels it feels dangerous it feels like we're on the precipice of there's no going back because I don't know until Spider-Girl 100 it's going to still feel like she's a kid and then Spider-Girl 100 is going to happen and that's it like there's no going back for Mayday we are on a trajectory that rushes her toward an inevitable conclusion that is just really unfair to a character that pivotally did so much for the Marvel line and tested so many storylines out. But I guess the only thing I'll say is like, we're still rocketing through time. So by the time we get to the end, it's not that long ago. And I have to believe that the appetite for definitely Mayday, but really at the end of the day, I want to believe the MC2 universe is lingering and simmering in the hearts and minds of a lot of Marvel fans and is just waiting for the right touch. Well, until we return to take a look at our last set of issues across five volumes, TK, where can everybody find you online? You can find me all over X's for Podcasts talking about comics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. You guys can find me, as always, all over this show, as well as on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Don't forget to check out our YouTube over at Hubs Plus, where you can check out more amazing content like The Billy Club, our dissection of Daredevil, starting with 
with the first ever appearance and going story by story from 1964 on. It's me alongside series contributor Tori Sheehan, and it's definitely a can't miss. Also, don't forget, you can check out my original work in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology, where I am joined by the likes of the great Joe Glass, Cena Grace, Anthony Oliveira, Terry Bloss. Could not be more honored to be in that book with an amazing cover by Kevin Wada. So you definitely don't want to miss that. And guys, until next time, when we come back to take a look at more MC Tuniverse, I guess we like we should have a cool sign off, like keep it wild, Spider Girl. Oh, oh well, because we don't want to say that other one anymore because it got put on a list and they don't say it anymore. Yeah. And remember, be the last hero standing. I, I literally was thinking exactly that. <laughs> we did it. We're the heroes. Standing. Ah, the last ones. Standing.